Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. And Safety Insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance, we'll help you manage life's storms. Ahead on Boston Public Radio with Dorian tearing its way up the Florida coast, we open up the lines and ask you if an historic hurricane can make climate change the issue in 2020. From there, we bring things back to Boston after Ayanna Presley went from Boston City Council to the House of Representatives. All of a sudden, everybody wants to be a city councilor. We'll talk about the upcoming elections there with Chris Arena and Jonathan Cohn. Our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, joins us to talk about the handling of these disasters out of the hurricane in Florida and the Bahamas. And Boris Johnson, Britain's brand new prime minister, is already having a Brexit nervous breakdown. Juliet Kayyem will tell us about that and more. All that's coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. So day two, you barely made it through day one. Let's be honest. <laughs> you admitted it. I'm not telling stories out of school. How are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. You ready the for first this? day is tough. You know, to get back. Tough. It's tough after our extended vacation. So Senator Rick Scott of Florida was once infamous for banning the Florida Department of Environmental Protection from using the words climate change or global warming in their official communications. That was when he was governor of the state. Now that Hurricane Dorian is threatening to cause havoc in his state, it seems like he's had at least a bit of a change of heart. Well, first off, we know climate's changing, um, and we know our storms seem to be getting bigger. I mean, just in, in what the last four years as governor, I had four of them. Now we have them my first year out as governor. Not quite Bill McKibben-like, but he is, <laughs> I mean, he is evolving. So we're opening the lines at 877-301-8970, asking you if an historic hurricane can change the debate about climate change in this country, including putting its center stage in 2020, 877-301-8970. You've made, when we were talking before the show, you, you're taking a lot out of the fact. I mean, he is still not saying that, that this is all a human made and that sort of thing, but even using the language is yeah, a huge departure well, for was, him. He was ridiculous. There was, a, there was supposedly this unwritten rule that he enforced upon all his underlings when he was the governor. And this is from a piece in 2005, USA Today, mm-hmm. that talks about how they couldn't uh, mention the words climate change or global warming or sustainability. This is the people that ran the EPA in Florida, and they, were, they weren't supposed to talk about sea level rise. They were talked about we're supposed to say nuisance flooding, this, yeah. making it seem that every time it rained and Miami was flooded and people were walking down the street with water up to their ankles was uh, just, you know, just another day in, in Miami Beach. And he has obviously evolved. He can't quite bring himself to say that fossil fuels has something to do with uh, what's going on with the climate. But he's certainly evolving because his state... I mean, they're evacuating people in Florida. We're having this this record string of Category 5 hurricanes, and a lot of them are involving his state. So I think he's got to kind of come into the real world. You know, all the polling, we've discussed this with you for years and years on the radio, and virtually every every poll we've ever discussed with you where people are asked about the importance of issues to them. We've discussed this with Bill McKibben, sort of the father of the movement, Mm -hmm. too, 
when he wrote The End of Nature, what, 30 years ago or something, uh, I think roughly 30 years ago, uh, started the whole uh, thing. People always rate climate change high, but they don't rate it as their top thing to the exclusion of others. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's sort of, I want someone who's good on climate change. I wonder if the, the, the seeing the visuals from the Bahamas, we don't know what's going to happen in, North, in the Carolinas or in Georgia in the next uh, day or two, is that going to change the dialogue? You know, the fact that, by the way, I'm sure we'll discuss this throughout the day. Uh, CNN tonight is doing like 42 straight hours right. of town halls. It's actually seven straight hours or six on climate I change. Think- They're not doing it just, in my opinion, just to tweak uh, their favorite target, Donald Trump. I think they're doing it because they're realizing well, that the American people care a lot about I this. I think a lot of things are happening. And you look at polls and it shows that this idea that climate change was 50 years away or 100 years away has now kind of fallen apart because, as I said yeah. before, we're having our longest streak of Category 5 hurricanes ever. And this hurricane stalled. I never heard of a Category 5 before. Well, the president hasn't (laughs) hasn't heard of them, even though we've had Irma, Maria, Michael, Dorian, you know. And before that, we had Hurricane Katrina. I'm sure he'd heard about Hurricane Katrina. By the way, during those hurricanes, he said that he had never heard of a Category (laughs) 5, which he just said about Dorian. But I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, well, he's the, the biggest climate change denier of all. It's interesting. When you look at polls, young Republicans are much more concerned about climate change, obviously because they're young and they're worried about it. Um, Majorities of Democrats are very, very worried about it. Here's what I think is different now. Uh, These these tremendously uh, damaging hurricanes, and you saw with the warmer water how the hurricane was getting bigger Mm -hmm. after it left the Bahamas, and this is one of the big problems is that the warmth of the water makes the storms more powerful, last longer, in some cases even stall longer. Then you saw this summer what happened to lakes around the country. You were on vacation when we did this devastating story about this lake in New Jersey. Oh, you told me about this. Yeah, go ahead. Which was closed for the mm-hmm. summer uh, because of this combination of things: this this blue and uh, this blue and green algae that is overwhelming and cyanobacteria. Uh, the, the lake, I've been lucky enough to spend my summers out my whole life on Cape Cod. Whole sections of it were totally closed for the summer. So here are these people living on these lakes. They've got their family coming down Fourth of July weekend, and you can't go in the water. You can't even ride your boat because they've blocked you off. Mm-hmm. It's like you're segregated from the rest of the lake. They won't let the lakes, the boats come out of these little ponds. Your point is it makes it much more real for people. It, it's happening now. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what, what people are seeing, and that's what's making this different. You know what I also think it makes it? 877-301-8970. I think the other thing that may make it different, because uh, we've had a similar discussion about guns, and it, I don't have any data to prove the point I'm about to make. You can harbor hope, even if it's somewhat unrealistic, that despite Donald Trump's connection with the NRA, he may ultimately do something on guns, maybe background checks, maybe even magazine, high-capacity magazines. Who knows? There's no, there's no gray on climate change with this president. He is totally in the denial category. He made a comment, I think it was at the G7, about he wasn't going to sacrifice the economy for windmills and whatever he said, solar panels, Dreams. something like that. So the point is that there, there are extremes here which I think helps uh, make this more of a center stage issue, which it has not become. I know we're going to have climate change people, uh, big time uh, uh, advocates for doing something serious, which is the majority of the American population, calling us and saying it's the biggest issue, it's the biggest issue. It hasn't been the biggest issue. Everybody mentions it on their list 
but it has never been number one for a significant swath of the American people. I think this hurricane may do it. I think the abject denial on the part of the president may do it. And if you see a little change, as Marjorie does with Rick Scott, you see CNN devoting seven hours of mostly primetime television to these well, uh, 10 town halls tonight. That's a pretty big deal. You know, the economy, obviously, everybody always says that's the biggest issue. But, you know, when rich people start getting hurt, then things start to change because, unfortunately, rich people have more power in America mm-hmm. than people that are poor or middle class people. Who lives in the water? Yeah. Rich people. Yeah. So when all the rich people's homes, <laughs> when you fly over Florida, uh, it, it, I had the chance to go to Sarasota, which is on the other side of Florida. It's on the west coast of Florida mm-hmm. this summer, and I was flying over there, and it was incredible. When you look out the window as you're getting closer to land, these houses are built like on top of the water. So when all these rich people, whether it's Florida or Georgia or the Carolinas or the people with lake uh, front property – are losing uh, their homes or they're losing their ability to swim in the water, that's when things start to happen. It was incredible what happened uh, where I live this summer, where all of a sudden, after saying for years and years and years, oh, no, we can't hook up to sewage systems, uh, we can't hook up to sewage systems because it's too expensive, what happens after one summer of the lake being closed? Suddenly we're hooking up to the sewage system. I mean, it's amazing how things switch when... um, it's the uh, rich people that are getting Well, you know, it, just cord. as an extension of this becoming real for people, and then we'll get to your calls at 877-301-897. A couple of months ago, we had Gina McCarthy and remember, who was head of the EPA for, uh, for Barack Obama, is now at Harvard. And she's running something that is, is do- has a wonderful mission. And she, I'm going to paraphrase what she said to us and to me on Greater Boston, it, and, and it is a paraphrase, is too much of the discussion about climate change has been about seeing polar bears on a shrinking piece of ice. And while all of us don't want to see polar, I assume most of us anyway, don't want to see polar bears drown or die or whatever, it it, it hasn't made the direct connection to our lives. And I think the point you make about it coming closer and closer and becoming more immediate and more immediate is what convinces well, people that it's no longer abstract but real and it should be part of their voting and activist agenda. One last thing. What we're seeing right now, we just heard Henry Santoro talk about bad hail and possible tornadoes. I mean, this is not so unusual anymore when we're talking mm-hmm. about tornadoes in Massachusetts. When we had that tornado in Springfield a few years ago, oh, sure. you people and I were went like out there and stunned. Broadcast from there the next day. Now this is happening more often. You Didn't we have these... them on the Cape a couple of uh, a yes, month or so ago? Yes, in yeah. Harwich yeah. And, and other parts. I think Yarmouth was affected too, for, first ever. Then you have these torrential rains. You know, someone wrote a great line saying that we shouldn't be saying, is this caused by climate change? We should, we should be saying, what impact is climate change having on this event? So in other words, with the lakes, it's not just um, – it, it's these torrential rains, which are coming more frequently because of climate change, are causing runoff from roads, from the fertilizer on people's lawns, in places where there are septic tanks, from, from septic systems. The, the ground is just saturating as the water rises. And even in lakes uh, where it doesn't rise, rise where it does in the ocean, the, the rain is causing the water the groundwater just to be saturated. So all these things are linked, and I think people are seeing it. Lynn and Akar, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you so much for calling. Hi. Hi. How are you guys? We're good. Thank you. Um, I think that a lot of the governors in red states are overwhelmingly affected by climate change, mm-hmm. and I don't think that for a second they don't believe in it. I just think they are also um, low-tax states. And once they change position from governor to senator, 
Now he's talking federal dollars. He's talking about the blue states kicking in. And all of a sudden, he's going to have to be faced with paying for any damage that's done to Florida and getting federal dollars. (laughs) That's a great point. That's brilliant. But it's not when it's the state. And they're the ones who get the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the floods and the earthquakes. They don't want to pay for it. They want us all to pay for it. Lynn, I think that's a really wonderful set of thoughts. Thank you. I mean it. It's very insightful. Once again, Lynn, thank you for the it's call. It's all about the bucks. <laughs> that's a that's a very that's a very great point. Let's go to Sam and Andover. Hi, Sam. Hello, Sam. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hi. Um, it's great to speak to you all. Thanks. But um, yeah, for me, I'm a young person, and climate change is definitely at the top of my list. And um, when it comes to this hurricane and a lot of the other events going on, what's happening in the Amazon, forest fires in California. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, that's so scary. Yeah, starting to wake up and see that I feel like climate change has been pitched as a single issue, as one thing. But it's really, as Jay Inslee had said, it's no longer in the race, but it it affects, it's a threat multiplier. And it's not just a single issue. By the way, speaking of Jay Inslee, the uh, governor of Washington, I assume you uh, know Sam, who announced in the last 24 or 48 hours that she was adopting the whole Inslee platform and then building on it on the climate change front. You know Elizabeth Warren did that, right? Oh, I did not. Yeah, she I has. did not know in the last 24 hours. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. But, so, but you yeah, make a good point, by the way. Usually, it's funny you say what you say. Usually, I don't have any data to prove this either. Usually, when things happen far away, I'm convinced that the vast majority of people, either because they're too scared to make the connection or just don't make the connection, don't. But I think the Amazon story was so frightening and so corrupt, uh, uh, what was happening in the rainforest. I, I agree with you. I, I had forgotten about that. It was only a couple of weeks ago. That uh, what Bolsonaro is doing there, uh, I think, and after the G7 offered that pathetic twenty million dollars that he refused oh, to help, and don't, I think uh, I think that has had an effect. And don't Sam. forget that at the G7, when they were discussing climate change, our president wasn't there. Was an empty chair. But he you know, there. but in all fairness, you know why he was an empty chair? He was meeting with two people who, it <laughs> turns out, were actually in the meeting that he couldn't get to because he was meeting with them, the head of India and the head of uh, Germany. This gives me Sam, an, thanks for the call. This we gives appreciate me it. Another opportunity to dump on Fox News because Fox News is, is totally in the climate change denial uh, area, too. I mean, it, it, Sean Hanley was talking about what are we going to do? You know, there's so much money in, in fossil fuels and oil. He's talking about this. By the way, it's exactly what Trump said in, uh, yeah. in France during yeah. the G7 in his press conference. And, and, and the uh, debate about, like so much else in the United States now, is partisan. Uh, you know, Democrats are much more upset about climate change than Republicans. And when you look at older Republicans, uh, you find many older Republicans, like 60, 70 years old, are fine with more coal. Uh, whereas younger Republicans in their 20s and 30s, like I said before, are much more concerned about climate change. You know, we've asked a lot of elected members of Congress this question, uh, mostly Democrats, I guess, because they're mostly Democrats in New England. Uh, when you go to the gym or you're in the lunchroom or you're having an honest conversation with a friend who's a Republican member of Congress and they're on the wrong side of climate change, do they actually believe what they're saying? Do you believe that most deniers – believe what they're saying? I don't. Uh, I think the evidence is, uh, well, I think the evidence is so overwhelming. You can't, you, you can parrot whatever the lines are, 
But you can't believe in 2019 that climate change is not only man-made, but is on the well, I, I a think, path to imminent destruction of our planet. Because I think, as, as Naomi Klein wrote in her book a couple of years ago now about what really addressing climate change would mean, that the idea of getting off fossil fuels uh-huh. is so, and, and really almost revolutionizing our economy is so scary for people to think about. Um, especially so you do if, think that they they don't believe what they're saying? Well, they're, I think a lot of people in the GOP got a lot of money from the Koch brothers. And where are the Koch brothers made their money? No, I understand that. Uh, 877-301-897. Let's go to Hyde Park where Bernier's on the phone. Hi, Bernier. Good morning, Jim. Welcome back from vacation. Thank you. Thank uh, you. From your secret mission, wherever you It were. was a secret mission. Uh, it will <laughs> remain secret. Thank you. Secret mission. That's why it was secret. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead, oh. <laughs> he wore the entrenched coat the entire time he was yeah, on vacation, Brunier. And it was I hot, understand. too, let me tell you. <laughs> so you're the one who's causing cl- climate change. <laughs> Personal <laughs> climate change, yes. What's up? Um, I think when I think of climate change, I think of uh, it's the same problem with cancer. Like we have, everybody knows cancer is a problem. Like anybody that dies now, you don't even have to get. It's probably cancer that kills them. Yet, we feel unable to do anything about cancer because there's so many things that you need to do that everybody's lost. I think with climate change, it's sort of the same idea. People believe climate change is, a, is an issue, but what can you do? It's too, it's too overwhelming. They need to find a way and the rhetoric for climate change to to empower people to, okay, these are the things that we could do, like one or two, three things that we can do, and, and stick on them like the Republican idiots do, you know, how they just focus on one or two things and they just just um, uh, focus on them. And people, so it could be real for people. When we talk, people talk about green gases, what is a green gas? I don't know what green gas greenhouse, is. Greenhouse, <laughs> greenhouse, greenhouse. Greenhouse gas. Yeah, but yes, Bernier, can I, can, can I disagree, disagree with one thing and then answer your second question? First of all, I, uh, if your point was we're not doing much about cancer, uh, I think we are making huge strides about cancer because individuals, rather than the government for the most part, but the, the individuals have decided to belly up to the bar financially in huge kinds of ways but i think the answer is here i'll speak for myself i'm okay. i am i believe the notion that we should all do whatever we can do whether it's recycle that sort of thing but it is depressing when you read these un reports and see that the 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 cataclysm is so close what you can do as a result are is change the policy of the country and the way you do that is by electing people who aren't deniers uh, anymore i mean this is i'm not going to you know, endorse a candidate, but I think you would agree if any of the 10 Democrats who are going to be on the CNN thing tonight or on the stage with ABC on the 12th at the next debate, if any of them were elected, we would make great strides, comparatively speaking, on climate change as compared to what we're not doing under this president. So it's actually pretty almost at our fingertips. Is it not, Bernier? I concur, except that you and I are fairly educated. We're talking about your average person who doesn't even watch the news or listen to NPR or your wonderful show here. People don't, 
they, they're just not concerned about that on a daily basis. They hear it, but it's not real for them. I'm not talking about your average person, because if I talk about people in my circle, of course they know what to do with cancer. I go to the gym to try to, you know, reduce whatever I have to reduce so I don't die and I could keep listening to you guys. But but most people don't care about those things. How do we make it? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, like I, I said, I, I understand your point too, but I think I think it's coming home more and more. I mean, we had those horrible wildfires out in California where people lost their homes. We had, you know, people that are that are people that are living in 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 mobile homes and all these mobile home camps because they don't have a lot of money. How about They're the videos the first from the Bahamas having to get evacuated? Everybody saw the videos last night. Yeah, uh, about what's happening in those two uh, islands. So. I, I, I totally agree with your point that it's got – and Marjorie made the point earlier, Bernier, that it's got to be personal and you've got to feel it yourself. But I think for the average person, whether you're a student of the issue or not, it's coming closer and closer and closer on your TV screen, your radio, whatever. So I guess I'm a drop more hopeful. Bernier, but, thanks know, as always for We also call. forgot to mention President's other suggestion. What's that? We drop, drop a Yeah. <laughs> we drop a nuclear bomb. Did you hear the other one? On this, the hard case. Did you hear the other one this week? I don't know who this guy was. I just read it very quickly. Someone said we should dro- drop ice into the ocean. So oh. we cool the ocean underneath. Oh, yeah. So we we dissipate the intensity yeah, of Yeah, Robert the just sent that uh, oh, we did? email. So oh, that was one that. of the suggestions. Sorry. Ice, yeah. Ice cool. cubes. <laughs> ice cubes. Now, if that's the answer to Bernier's thing. If everybody piled up, if we got one spot, for example, in downtown Boston, where everybody took their ice cube trays and just emptied their ice cube trays, and then somebody carted all of this stuff out off the coast of Georgia or the Carolinas, maybe that could do it too. Okay, we are talking about whether it's time to change the dialogue around climate change, whether you are more worried about it, whether it's going to be a factor in the 2020 election, especially if you are under 40. And you could actually be around in 50 years when the stuff really starts to, you know what, hit the fan. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradish. She is Marjorie. And we're talking about uh, climate change and whether an historic hurricane we're experiencing now, at least part of our country in the Bahamas are, uh, can change the debate about climate change leading up to 2020 and make it a center stage, if not the center stage issue. 877-301-8970. Marjorie's taking great hope. I'm, by the way, I don't mean to ridicule this. I think you may are onto something. The fact that a guy who was a total denier to the point of, of absurdity by banning his own secretaries from using the terms climate change when he was the governor of Florida, who's now a senator from Florida, Rick Scott, who in that interview we played a few minutes ago, I think it was with Chris Wallace from Fox News, was, again, he was not, as I said before, he's not in the Bill McKibben category, but there surely has been a shift in his rhetoric. I think that's indicative of the fact that uh, this is becoming much more real for a lot of people who've been on the wrong side of the fence here. I'm reading some emails here. Kim says, two easy things we can do, stop eating meat or cut back significantly in compost, but no one wants to do these things, so we're doomed. Gabriel says, there's a lot to be done to reduce the impacts of climate change. It starts with nuclear 
energy. Lots of people uh, do point that out as well. By the uh, way, that's going to be a big, big debate in yeah. the months and years. And I bet you it's going to be a big debate in the presidential election as well. well exactly. because clean energy, it's but obviously energy. scary energy. You just have to worry about what you do with all that. Just have to worry about <laughs> or blowing up. That's right. I watched oh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Oh, my God. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet. It was too ahead, depressing for the What's summer. Next? Now that it's warm, cold weather again, I'm going to watch it. Uh, Gwen says that so many of her Republican friends believe climate change is, quote, just the earth changing like it always has over the millennia. There's nothing to be done. And God is in charge. He's letting this happen and will save the earth if he wants to. And R says the rich people, they're so concerned, should stop flying all over the world on these airplanes and these unnecessary trips, which, of course— By the course, way, I'm with you, Art. When you read stories about the big-time celebrity environmentalists—I mean, remember Al Gore was ridiculed for the size of his health— Leonardo DiCaprio for flying huge private, private jets yep. to these environmental. I agree. It shows total hypocrisy. And by, as opposed to Greta Thunberg, who is sailing. <laughs> is it to New York City? Where is she sailing? What UN thing? Yeah, is the, it New York climate, City? Climate uh, change thing, This yeah. kid is on. If you, you don't follow there's her on Twitter. Pic, there's she a great is picture of her on the bow of the boat. Going, uh, Every day there is. Yeah. I mean, she, it's, it's great. Diane and Akar, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks so much for calling in. Hi. Hi, I call in frequently, usually from New Bedford, Fairhaven. I cool. love you guys. Thank you so much. And anyhow. Oh, by I the way, Thunberg, excuse me, has already landed in New York, one of my coworkers told me. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Go ahead, Diane. <laughs> Last night on Stephen Colbert, um, he had the what he called like a weird guy in a funky shirt, and he's the one with the ice suggestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, was it? Oh, that's great. Stephen Colbert from last night. That's okay, where great. I learned it from. Thanks. Anyway, it was hysterical. Okay, now my opinion on I'm a believer in ch- um, climate change. I absolutely am. And I'm sure many, many, if not most people are. However, in my area especially, uh, it's a very depressed area down in the New Bedford area. They probably don't want to hear that. But people are worried day to day, literally putting food on the table, keeping a roof over their families' heads. So with our next president, not the one currently in office, if we can turn around the economy so that these people can keep their houses and put food on the table, then they can you know, maybe want to address climate change. On but Diane, day. Diane, look at all the job opportunities from the uh, massive wind farm that's going off Martha's Vineyard. That's going to be, that's I, going to produce totally, jobs in New Bedford. Yes, it is. And my son, who's a sheet metal apprentice right now, <laughs> hopefully he'll have a job for a very long time. And yes, I saw, um, uh, Senator Markey at New Bedford Vogue a couple of weeks ago talking about the Green Deal. Right now, it's just a big, huge concept that needs to be tweaked down, and I believe that will work. But I also believe that right now we have to get people out of their current personal crises. By the way, Diane, can I take issue with people. one thing? I don't live in New Bedford, but Marjorie and I spent a day in New Bedford a couple of months ago for that Moby Dick readathon. We had breakfast with the mayor. He was on our show, I guess, right around the time Mayor Mitchell. I have to say, you're I'm not suggesting there are not people who are having a hard time. I think New Bedford has made such huge strides in the last couple of years. Do you do you not think it's moving in the right direction in a serious way? I grew up in that. I grew up in the area, and from when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, it has massively improved. And yeah. That's true. But we still have people. Of course. I myself, and people know this, so I'll say it publicly, sure. I'm just coming out of having to um, – declare bankruptcy twice to save my home and my husband and I are both educated people but we're not able to put food on the table if um, we have to bankrupt again and that's ridiculous but um, 
Well, anyway, uh, we wish you luck. that's my opinion. No, we, we have to have people feel secure in their own personal lives, and then they can look at the world as a whole. And hopefully that'll happen quickly with our next president. Diane, thanks thank for the call. For the Good call. luck to you and your family. We really appreciate your sharing your story with us. Lynn from Chelmsford, thank you for calling. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Are you there, Lynn? Oh, hi. 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 I didn't hear you. Hi. Welcome. Well, thanks for, hi. Well, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have three points. Uh, the first one is uh, it, climate change is happening. It's whatever people seem to perceive as the cause that has become the issue. And poor Bernie Sanders four years ago, when he was asked on the debate stage yeah. what was going to be the biggest threat, that's what he said. And, the biggest know, I, security I, I, threat, and he was ridiculed right. for and, it. And, well, and this is, and I'm trying to pace the rage, and I'm hoping Juliet can get in touch with these people tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just the geopolitical risk right now, you talk about the polar ice cap and polar bears, but at the end of the day, Russia's going to be able to motor over to Alaska if we lose the polar ice cap, and it becomes a whole geopolitical thing, and I think it got lost in the weeds. When Mike Pompeo said, when he was talking about trade, what a wonderful trading opportunity. New opportunities for trade. He so did say I mean, that. I just, I'm trying to pace my rage, but every day it's something new. Like you said, Marjorie, I would just like to go a day without something that just makes, you know, makes me say, you know, where, where is the truth and the facts in all of this? So I'm hoping that these people, when they have their town halls, can start to really bring home to people that... You know, I feel for Diane, but if you don't have clean air and you don't have clean water, nothing else matters. Well, but Lynn, I want to make the point that Marjorie made is you don't it isn't an either or. I assume that for those who watch the CNN town halls tonight, some of the 10 of them, that most, if not all these people are going to make pretty convincing uh, arguments that there is a lot of economic hope in clean energy alternatives. And uh, Massachusetts, I think, is help prove that, even though not fast enough for some people. So I don't think well, it's an either-or. Lynn, th- thanks. The other thing is that the people that bear the brunt, uh, besides the people with the waterfront property that can probably rebuild someplace else, are people in the uh, poor people in the inner cities with the asthma and the lack of clean air and the lack of clean water. I mean, you know, Newark now has that terrible problem. Oh, urban asthma is a huge It's a huge Yeah, issue. so... It's, it's true, as, as, as Diane said. It's hard to think about climate change when you're worried about you know your your next meal. On the other hand, the brunt is being paid by the poor. You know, for someone who's as climate change is obsessed as you are, you know, there's been a lot of criticism the last couple of days of the major networks, cable and otherwise, for spending such little time on what's happening with Brexit and Boris Johnson. We're going to talk to Juliet Kayyem about that a bit at at noon. But what's gone in its place is 24 seven because they're pictures as opposed to they're not dramatic pictures of a, even though there's some, of a debate in in Parliament. Uh, when you are treated to, maybe a poor choice of words, to unending, as we're looking at right now on local and national stations, of the devastation in the Bahamas, that, I think, that helps. I mean, as horrible as the devastation is and the pain that's being suffered by those families and businesses, obviously you wouldn't wish on anybody. I'm, I would argue that has a positive effect when it's relentlessly broadcast to uh, people in this country. We have time for one more, Marjorie. Mike and Chelsea. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, how you doing? Great. Good. Um, I've listened, listened to you guys for years, even when you guys were on AM. So. Oh. Um, so, well, thanks. I, um, my, my view is uh, 
you know, I've been listening to these predictions for ages, you know, since you know I'm in my mid fifties, and they've been saying the world was going to be over by now, you know, if we didn't change. You know, I, I think I wouldn't call myself a denier of climate change, because climate is always going to change. But it's it's what is it that us humans have have a measurable effect on the climate, uh, and what can is anything that we can do is going to affect that. And you have scientists on both sides. Well, actually, that's not true, Mike. You don't don't anymore, anymore. Mike. You really, really don't. You other than there was that guy at MIT, that one guy who was (laughs) basically bribed to lie. But there is there is virtual unanimity, which you can't say on many issues in the science community. And you're right; there were some people who. Uh, uh, did a chicken little thing before the sky was actually falling, but there's not the scientific division I mean, we know Mike, it's, that you're it's, talking about now. It's 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 largely fossil fuels, Mike. But I mean, all these all these uh, colleges and different different you know um, organizations that do uh, research, they're basically they want that research money, and they're you know they're going to take that money and they're going to get the answers that people are looking to get. I mean, you can look, any, any two people can look at the same thing and, and give you, you know, two people can look at the Bible and tell you two different stories about it. Uh, and two people can, can interpret uh, the weather. I mean, Noah has been, um, it, it's been, it's been documented that Noah has changed their numbers uh, to make it look warmer over the years. They've gone backwards and changed things. Um, you know, to, Mike, to, can I make a suggestion, if I may, respectfully? Uh, I would. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about this again next week. Why don't you identify for us credible scientists who are saying in 2019 that climate change is a hoax or is exaggerated, and call us back next time we discuss well, this and but give Mike's, us that example. I don't know where you get your media from, Mike, but there's a whole propaganda machine led by Fox News, led by a lot of uh, conservative media, financed by the Koch brothers. One one of them just died, as we know, but that they, they are billionaire, billionaires hundreds of times over because of the oil and gas industry. So there's a lot of propaganda. You have to kind of look where the source is. And the president of the United States uh, is basically saying that this is a big hoax, too. But well, I'm not talking about Lou Dobbs. I'm talking about scientists. And well, that- I, think, I think for Mike's proposition to be correct, then you have to assume that 99% of the scientists in the or United the States are, are corrupt. Oh. And we talk to uh, uh, you know, a climate scientist all the time in our own Heather Goldstone, who's from Woods Hole, which is a wonderful institution, which is on the water, which has documented this. I mean, it's just, it's, I don't know, Mike, I don't mean to dump on you, but it's, at this point, I think it's kind of crazy thinking. Mike, thanks for the call. By the way, one of our coworkers typed for us a 2016 article cited by NASA says there is 97% consensus there was then three years ago among currently publishing scientists. Mike, do call us back next time we talk about it. We're happy to continue the conversation. Coming up, we look at the huge field of people jumping into the Boston City Council race and how housing and transportation are affecting the campaigns. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Fifteen candidates will be on the ballot for the four available Boston City Council at-large seats later this month. Two years ago, there were only eight for the same seats. Two years before that, there were only five. So does Ayanna Presley's rise to Congress have something to do with it? Is it the urgency of uh, adequate transportation, better schools, affordable housing that's driving the surge? Or maybe the 2020 race where Democrats have set an example by flooding a primary field. Joining us to talk through the upcoming Boston City Council races and the issues and where it fits into this election cycle are Christopher Arena and Jonathan Cohn. Chris is the CEO of GFTB Digital. Did I get that right, I hope? Yes, you did. Thank you. And was a voting member of the Alston Civic Association, Alston Brighton Board of Trade. He's currently an advisor of the Y2Y Youth Homeless Shelter. Jonathan Cohn is the Elections Committee Chair of Progressive Massachusetts. Jonathan and Chris, great to see you both. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much for being here. So for years, as you guys probably know, the Boston City Council has been the butt of endless jokes. I think the biggest hearing I ever went to when I used to cover them was... uh, I know what you're going to say. The dog. The dog's getting electrocuted by the the manhole covers. covers. (laughs) Everybody with their dogs. The place was absolutely packed. And the poor (laughs) dog, some of them actually did get electrocuted by the manhole covers because of the salt and the snow and stuff like that. But things have obviously changed. So what's happened? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And as a dog owner, that was definitely uh, <laughs> it was as, devastating. As, it was devastating. It was a turning point for did me. You get little, um, did you get little booties for your dog? At the oh, time? I have the salt <laughs> booties for my dogs. Gotta yeah, have them. We have, we have two dogs that are very different in size, so you have to get all of those booties going. Um, no, I think what's happened is that millennials are aging into leadership roles. I think there is a, a major gap between... The boomer generation, the millennial generation, uh, you know, Gen X obviously has taken some opportunities, but you're seeing millennials now hit that 30, 35, 40 at the oldest level. So they're now aging into opportunities for leadership. So you're seeing a lot more of younger candidates like an Ayana, a Michelle, Alejandra um, jumping into the field. But on top of that, the council has been empowered for the past four years, you know, through Sammy Yoon and Ayana, and, and you're seeing a more empowered council, which then inspires, it's kind of like chicken and the egg, is is the council more inspired, or are the candidates inspiring future candidates? I want to get back to the empowered issue, because I don't mm-hmm. agree with it, 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 for just a second, but the, 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 the expansion, Jonathan, of the mm-hmm. number of candidates, is it a function of people saying an opportunity to do something, or an opportunity to find a ladder to a higher office, a la Presley? So what I would say is that I think one reason why there are so many candidates is that the job actually does seem more attractive in the past because the council's doing more than what it has in the past. And so it's the type of thing that always happens in any office. If you're just going to sit there and not do anything, that that's whether it's because you want to do stuff or you have ambition, it's not that great of a position to have. But in recent years, we have seen the council actually push back on push back against the mayor on issues, whether that's... Um, kind of with the Airbnb ordinance, which that was with uh, Councilors Michelle Wu and Lydia Edwards putting pressure on, on Marty Walsh to strengthen it, whether it's the kind, of, the kind of plastic bag ordinance or community choice energy on the environmental front, which really were council-led initiatives that had initial pushback from the mayor. It makes it a more attractive position if you feel like you might actually be able to do things But a more attractive position, this gets back to Chris's point about using the term empower a minute ago. First of all, I was a city councilor in Cambridge, and at the time, I propo- I supported abolition of both the city council in Cambridge <laughs> and the Boston City. And by the way, I did, and I don't mean that as a joke. We have a strong city manager, who, and no one knows who he is in mm-hmm. Cambridge, yeah. who runs everything. 
and we have mm-hmm. a strong mayor in Boston yeah. with a city council who has bully pulpits, which have been used very effectively mm-hmm. by a bunch of people in the last couple of years. But no, they have. But they have no, no the, formal the power Cambridge... except to vote no on a Hold budget. On. What? Hold on. The Cambridge City Council what? was most famous for writing edicts about the war Iraq in Iraq. War. <laughs> by the way, I abstained on that vote, so don't yeah, give me any And cut. as everybody knows, as soon as the Cambridge City Council says, let's get out of Iraq and <laughs> Afghanistan, right away. Okay, you the know, whole the... country will follow exactly. after that. But am I not right, Jonathan and, and yeah. Chris, uh, getting back, starting with you, Jonathan, it, yeah. it's a bully pulpit for is it 13 people? I'm embarrassed to even ask the question. It's 13, right? Yeah. For It's a bully poll. They don't have any power except to vote no on the mayor's budget, right? No formal power. So I would say, I'd say that in terms of the things that are defined parts of the job, that like if you kind of in the style of like say Steve Murphy, who like if he basically only showed up to cast the votes that he needed to <laughs> cast and wasn't there, like did the bare minimum of the job, that's something that you can do and you're still technically doing the job. And that when it comes to the budgetary matters, the city council doesn't have much power. They have passed, or to what I know, like they have passed ordinances that do go through them, uh, kind of changing, as I noted on the housing front, regulatory front. They're limited, but because uh, one thing that also limits the council, uh, whenever we see another, whenever we see like a conservative state legislature pass some new law to ban a deep blue city from actually passing its own laws. I always think, well, Massachusetts did that about like a century before all of you. Uh, since that's because of home rule stuff in Massachusetts as well. Which is ridiculous, by the way. But yeah, that's should, not the we city council. Explain that to people. Yeah. Because which basically says in the vast majority of yeah. circumstances, for example, something I championed unsuccessfully as that's a city right. councilor, lowering the voting age in your yeah. community. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't Boston or Cambridge or whatever, Fitchburg, be able yeah. to lower the voting age in local elections? Well, they can't well, unless they pass a resolution and allow—well, it depends. Mm-hmm. And, and allow a—and the, then the, the state legislature, where people come from 350 cities mm-hmm. and towns that are not that city or town, have to vote yes on this thing for the home rule petition mm-hmm. to uh, uh, become— uh, uh, law. So what are the, it is, I mean, I am right. It's a bully pulpit primary. And I'm not disparaging that, but it is essentially a bully pulpit, Chris, is it not? So Jim, I, I come from two very different places that I think, uh, one you'll really appreciate. Uh, so I was born in Rhode Island and we had a candidate run a couple of years ago that wanted to uh, uh, abandon the LG's office. They ran for LG just to get rid of the office. And I think that's a great example of people being so distrusting of their government um, that they, they only want constituent services and that's it. There's no policy. There's no sort of policy windows or creativity. Um, the other place that I've lived in is Washington, D.C. before I came to Boston. And as, as everyone knows, Washington... And they want to abolish the vice president, don't they? So it's <laughs> this variation on the theme. I am fully on board with that plan. Um, no, no. So, so, so uh, in Washington, D.C., it's one of the only places in the country without representation, where you, you have shadow senators and shadow representatives, but you don't have any actual vote. So effectively, the mayor and the city council are your entire state government, your entire age. They run everything at the size of one of the largest regional economies in the country. And you see a council that is so empowered to do major, you know, build bridges, fix roads, but also do major bag taxes, um, fight for uh, 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 family leave and and these sort of mass sweeping policies. So those two places have very different levels of of corruption history, Tammany Hall Mm -hmm. politics. But what happens here, I don't 
agree with the bully pulpit part. I think what's happened is you've seen candidates realize that they have influence at the state level beyond just the city. I think Boston is the number one economic driver of this state. So if our council members aren't going up there and going to Baker's office and asking for a better T, um, a better a better uh, statewide transit, if they aren't asking for better schools and better housing at a state level, then then what are they doing? What are we paying them six figures a year to do if they're not actually advocating at a at a larger level beyond you know punching above their punching above their weight class? We're talking to Chris Arena and Jonathan Cohn. Well, it's also like the the caliber of people that are now on the city council. I mean, I remember when Michelle Wu ran a few years ago. I thought, wow. What are you doing running for the Boston City Council? Because she's really smart, very impressive, got a great education, the whole thing. Now we have Andrea Campbell, who's the president of the City Council, who's got an incredible story, a foster kid, uh, a twin brother who, who, who died in prison. She went to Boston Latin, went to Princeton. You know, she's, she's really impressive. I think it's not just them, by the way. There are tons. There's of a really whole bunch of. We had Lydia yeah. uh, Edwards on. I mean, there's there's a mm-hmm. there's a really impressive group on the city council now. It's not, you know, like I said before that I don't want to go after any particular people, but it go wasn't ahead. always such a no. It wasn't we'll be such glad a to do that. Esteemed <laughs> don't <group. want> name. <laughs> And so when you hear these people, when you see Wu talking mm-hmm. about the tea, the tea should be free, or you hear Andrea Campbell talk about the urgency of the school system, I think they get pay attention to. Uh, by by not just the press, but by serious leaders in a way didn't used to happen. You know? And I, I think Michelle and the T is a great example of that because it's a way, it is, it is a bully, it is a bully pulpit thing that can have real impact, but it's a way of how you can use that platform to advocate for policy in a way in which I think that she did, a, she did a solid job of driving attention to an issue that's already kind of on everybody's minds. Well, because, she totally moved Marty Walsh. I mean, I, he may yeah. not admit it, but I think it's pretty clear that exactly. for Marty Walsh to right. be critical of the governor, which he was, not by name, but said we need exactly. more action from the state, I, I think it's pretty obvious as a function of woo pushing, which... Exactly, which, which, which does show that, there, that the bully pulpit can have power in terms of how it can move things. Just want to also, when you're kind of talking with about Michelle and Andre and other counselors, that one thing I think is a, a core change in the council in recent years is how much more diverse the council has gotten. Oh, absolutely. Which yeah. is um, both in terms of both in ra- more racially diverse and kind of more diverse in terms of like the, the representation oh, gender, of women. Too, of yeah, in terms of the number of women and the possibility even that next year we might end up with a majority female city council, which is just... Like, that we could have like a majority female, majority pe- people of color council going in kind of in 2020, which if you told somebody in Boston maybe, let's say, like 15 years ago that that was going to be the case, they'd probably stare, like kind of stare, stare at you. Wasn't it all Irish guys and Italian guys? Wasn't right. that it? Probably more Irish than Italian. Uh, maybe it changed you, a little bit. I think you, Jonathan also brings up a good point. And not only is there going to be a majority, potentially majority people of color, majority mm-hmm. women, you also get majority progressives, which mm-hmm. I think is, oh, is yeah. a big key That's a good here. Point. When you contrast the, the five car flarities of the world and the you know the 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 Siomos yeah. and a lot of the folks that are currently retiring for for various reasons um, and you contrast that with the Michelle Wu's and Michelle's a great friend and a great public advocate and the Alejandra Saint Gans yes. Julia Mejia um, David Halbert you're getting a lot of mm-hmm. progressive activists but also people who know how to build policy and that's the difference between what I think you got from the very beginning is a lot of people came up like Michelle was an activist on the ground boots on the ground working with Warren. But a brilliant activist who now has learned how to move policy and get policy done, you're starting to see more of those candidates run together. So a really cool thing that happened is Kim Janey, mm-hmm. Alejandra Saint-Gien, and Michelle Wu share a campaign An office. office. 
That is, I used to work in political, like before I worked in digital marketing and running my firm, I worked in political organizing. I managed campaigns. I've never in my 11-year career ever heard of someone sharing an office like that. By the way, the three of them were on with me in Greater Boston. (laughs) Here's Michelle Wu describing the very unusual arrangement. We are done with the days of a campaign office as a secretive war room that's sort of closed off. We wanted the office to be a hub of community and to welcome everyone in. Personally, I support secretive war rooms, but that's for <laughs> maybe from a different... Abolishing council, so secretive war rooms. Are there, and these 15 candidates, and please don't name them all, but the 15 candidates for the at-large uh, positions, are there common threads, in ter- other than, for example, these three women, in terms of issues, or is it everything is local kind of, uh, I understand citywide, but everything is unique to that individual candidate, Chris. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so, so political campaigns, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, they're built on data. I think we all know that now, obviously with Cambridge Analytica and some of the other things, but it, the level in which hyper-targeting is important and, and finding your constituency is, is, cannot be understated. So if anyone watched the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez documentary where they were oh, doing so Facebook great. ads, oh, right, that. that part where they do Facebook ads that are targeted by, by location, by gender, by, by uh, 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 language. That's what I do in my downtime. And I can tell you right now, there are some candidates that I see have that level of um, fortitude and, and, and um, uh, beauty in their campaign. And what I see with those, I mean, I think if you're looking at the race, Michelle Wu and Michael Flaherty are safe. I, I think those two are those two are very safe seats. So it's really more of a fight for the last two, um, especially if you look at their war chests. If you look at their voter base, it's big enough that they don't really have to fight for a lot of precincts. So when you look beyond that, I think you've got really four candidates that are, are sort of in that top tier that are looking really good and have good campaign organizations. That's David Halbert, um, Julia Mejia, um, Alejandro um, um, St. Guillen, and uh, I think... Althea Garrison, just because of, you know, Althea being on the ballot. Has no, run cer- forever. Has run forever. Well, she's an incumbent now. Right. Too, With the incumbency does certainly help you on the ballot. The question is how much when you have a crowded race. And then what I think people really underestimate are some of the niche candidates like Domingo Storosa, someone who's fighting for a very specific cause and is, are, is, is fighting for a part of the city that no one's ever really fought for before. You know, I should know the answer to this question, Jonathan, yeah. starting with you. is A couple of years ago, we, when I was talking about how pathetic turnout was in elections in this country mm-hmm. and why they should abolish the Boston City Council, the turnout had been something like 12% or something. Was it better, was it better in, the most, in the last round two years ago? How decent was the turnout? I... I it, I think that sounds about right to me that it was around that amount. I feel like it might have been 13%. I remember listening to the commissioner talk not long after that. Um, but, yeah, 13% but is hardly impressive. But it's not a problem, even though you guys are big advocates of yeah. progressive city councilism. Isn't it a problem when only one in eight eligible voters are deciding who these men and women are to be, even if they end up with great elected officials? I mean, that's seven out of eight people who are represented – have chosen, I'm not defending them, not to have yeah. a voice. So I'll, I'll use this as an opportunity to plug one thing that I've been working on this sure. at the state level is outlawing for Election Day registration, which can, it's not going to suddenly bring that like 13% up, like super high. But it's, no, it would help, I agree. But it would help in Same terms day, of since yeah. um, that tonight is the last day people can register before yeah. the September 24th uh, election. Yeah. Uh, and there might be many people who are just finding out about the election. So say that again, by the way. Today is the... Yeah, tonight at 8, 8 p.m. Hey, is the deadline. Go? Brought that up. Where do you go? The, if you go 
if you if you I don't know what the you can register online. I can't remember the exact website, but the Secretary of State's website will have that. And if you even just Google Massachusetts online voter registration, sec.state.ma.gov. Thank you, Arjun, to the awesome. rescue. Okay. Thank you, sec.state.ma.gov. Yeah, awesome, okay. great. And 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 the actual vote September twenty fourth. Yeah, which also happens to be um, like National Voter Registration Day. Uh, so, which is kind of another tie, tie into the fact of we should allow people to to do it. Then it's also the day before my birthday, so I'm hoping we get a good. <laughs> Glad you got that in. I'm really good plug there. We were hoping that was the case. Yeah. Gentlemen, you make a pretty good case. Thanks so much. It's good to see you yeah, both. Yeah, thank Thanks. you very, very much for coming in. And we're glad that thank things you. have improved at the Boston City Council, even though it may not be as funny as it used to be. Chris Arena is the CEO of GFTB Digital and was a voting member of the Austin Civic Association and Austin Brighton Board of Trade. He's currently advisor to the Y2Y Youth Homeless Shelter. Jonathan Cohn, I said that correctly. Yes, correct. Is the Elections Committee Chair of Progressive Massachusetts. Christopher and Jonathan, thank you very, Great very much. Great to see much you guys. Thank you for coming in. Up next, we're going to talk to our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, about Hurricane Dorian and what happened when President Trump touched down in France to meet with the G7. Stay tuned for that. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, when President Trump met with the G7, he promised to make a lot of deals, but walked away with nothing. In a couple of minutes, we'll talk to national security expert Juliet Guyon about what happened when Donald Trump went to France. From there, we'll hear about the latest in the art scene and his review of It, Chapter 2. That's from GBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen. Vice President Mike Pence said that because he had lunch with the gay head of state of Ireland, he must not be anti-gay. Sounds good to me. <laughs> We'll talk with media maven Sue O'Connell about that and the log cabin Republicans endorsing President Trump. From there, our TV man Bob Thompson tells us what he'll be watching this week. And still looking for colleges, kids? Not too late to apply to the University of Texas in Austin, where TV and film heartthrob Matthew McConaughey is now a full professor. Then we'll open the lines and ask you about cable versus Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter on Great Blue Hill, now is the time to listen to live local talk on WGBH Radio, Boston's local NPR. Eastern Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. How are you holding up? Yesterday by noon you were fading. How are you holding up today? I'm doing better, and your mood has improved. You were really grumpy this morning, and now things are it's not so bad two hours in. Thank you very much. So when Hurricane Dorian grew into Category 5 hurricane, President Trump marveled that he had never seen a Category 5 hurricane before. After a weekend of monitoring the storm from a golf course in Virginia, he took to Twitter to warn the people of Alabama, of course, they'd be hard hit. Then the National Weather Service quickly pointed out Alabama is not in the hurricane's path. 
Oh, well. Here with us in Studio 3 to go over that and Trump's performance at the G7 is Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's an analyst for CNN, former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Department at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Happy post-Labor Day, Juliet oh, Kayyem. I'm in a mood. I know. I'm that's in a not mood. Even, I shouldn't have said it. Well, I know. Nice there's no happy. Let's, there's not. No, it's not. Summer's over. Summer's I over. Know. Winter's coming. Anyway. Let's get back to the uh, news of the day. We've been seeing yes. nonstop pictures on uh, your station, CNN, of the just utter devastation. Yeah. Bahamas, now we're uh, seeing the hurricane swirling uh, toward not a direct hit, we don't think, no. yet, but moving up the coast of at least uh, the Carolina. upper part of yeah. Florida. And So how, how are we doing handling this <laughs> so, I mean, security person? I mean, well, you know, obviously... You know, Dorian hits Bahamas. That's a very different response. I mean, when you're on an island, we saw this with Puerto Rico, although Puerto Rico is ours, but there's just nowhere to go. So unlike New Orleans, where you're just evacuating people to Mississippi and Alabama and everywhere else, uh, we're going to have a we're we're going to have a humanitarian crisis in the Bahamas within 72 hours unless they can get water there, unless they can get food there. So that's what we're monitoring in terms of the Bahamas. There's goodwill. There's a very uh, uh, rigorous sort of both Caribbean and South American Navy plan to get food and facilities. But I'm looking at these pictures. I don't know where anything goes. Like, I don't, I mean, it's just like, here's land and here's what we're going to do. So that's going to be a challenge. As, as Dorian, it makes its way up. Um, it looks like Florida has been relatively saved, although we're going to have the hurricane warnings and, and potential evacuations. North uh, Carolina may be under some threat. Everyone should listen to, you know, local takes. The surf up here might be pretty good this weekend. Um, uh, but I think in terms of how we're doing, um, I think we got lucky. I think that we just probably, I mean, this is knock on wood, but just to probably won't need to mobilize in the fashion we thought we were going to at the beginning of the weekend. Um, FEMA is depleted. As we know, it is um, many many manpowers um, under what it should be. It has an acting administrator. Uh, the president last week moved funds from FEMA uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, the, to build has the wall. Has the $150 million actually been transferred? Yeah, so there's has? two different transfers that occurred over the last seven days. So the first was, of course, a transfer from FEMA to um, uh, to ICE for what was called border enforcement exercises or border enforcement capacity. Mm-hmm. That's ICE judges and everything else. Yesterday, the president announced, I think it was a multi-billion dollar transfer of construction um, and construction enhancements that the Pentagon had for their billion, right yeah. for their own facilities over for border construction. Now, this is a really interesting story. It's clear that the Pentagon that the Secretary of Defense um, may, you know, uh, you know, is essentially saying, I'm moving this money to support border enforcement, which will relieve the military of other duties it finds itself in the border, sort of a dig about the movement of active troops. But, but you know, the border is the uh, ego exercise that has eaten up almost all of our other homeland uh, uh, security uh, capacity, and we're seeing it uh, quite remarkably uh, right now with with um, uh, just sort of what's happening to FEMA. Can you one thing I, I, I never understand uh, it, how it works in in this country is uh, I've read and seen that governors, I guess, of Georgia and the yeah. Carolinas have ordered mandatory evacuations of anywhere. The numbers I've seen from eight hundred thousand to a million people. What happens when there's a mandatory evacuation in the United States? Mm-hmm. I assume it's state by state, yeah. but uh, a governor orders an evacuation of the coastline in his or her state, 
and John Doe and Jane Doe don't evacuate. So what happens? I mean, so you start with um, tough love, and then you get to, uh, I guess, really tough love. I mean, I, I, let me start that over. You start with trying to get people to cooperate to understand the risks that they're that they are under, and also understand the risks that they will have to first responders. What we often do when that happens is we will tell a person to put their social security number in pen on their arm, oh, really? just in case we can't get to them in time and their body decomposes. You oh, want to put the fear oh. of God. And someone, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, you're not gonna risk first responders because Jane and John Doe decided that they mm-hmm. wanted to stick it out. So you you do things that get people to realize that they're not messing around. Um, but then, if the people don't abide by mandatory evacuation, they are on their own. You have no you have no public responsibility to assist them, um, and they are not a priority uh, because they, you know, essentially in tort law, you know, you sort of come to the harm. They stayed at the harm, so. There are different ways to do this. I think, you know, people need to be forgiving. Sometimes evacuation orders end up being for not. They're worth it because you're just going to, you know, you just want to be uh, better safe than sorry. I think the other thing that you note in terms of this pre-planning for the hurricane, um, you know, I, this is what I teach. This is what I study. So it's just uh, this is the post-Katrina world we're living in. And the post-Katrina uh, Reform Act gave governors uh, uh, increased authorities to be able to uh, position better before the hurricane hits. Our dis- whole disaster relief system was different before Katrina. It sort of waited for the bad to come, and then you come in. That includes what's called a pre-declaration, which all of these um, uh, states have gotten. Uh, Trump playing politics with this uh, hurricane, which I just think is worth noting, is um, uh, tweeted out yesterday that Senator Tillis from North this, Carolina, yeah. that Senator Tillis had asked for a, a pre-landing declaration, which he granted. That is just inconsistent with the law. It was a way of supporting a Republican. The Democrat, the governor in uh, North Carolina is a Democrat. So, if you, so I don't, you know, the idea that, you know, th- th- that Trump even can come to a hurricane of this magnitude without the lens of division is just, you know, it's, it, it's shown by the tweets, right? And that's what scares me because obviously, why, why even do that? I mean, it's just, it's just so stupid. No one knows who asked for an emergency declaration except oh. for like stupid people like me. But, you know, you said something at the beginning um, how, of course, in the United States of America, you can evacuate by getting on the highway and driving away. There may be terrible traffic. There may be some people who can't drive or have cars, but yeah. that's the way you usually do it. And this is not the United States, but when there are islands like the Bahamas yeah. and there are going to be more, what are people supposed to do? Get in boats or fly? Because so, yeah. you are sitting ducks. So they have, oh, you mean beforehand? Well, yeah. So there were evacuation, the people did try to get out who might not have a place to stay. Um, and uh, But uh, for the most part, if you're a citizen of there, you are, you're kind of doomed, so to speak, if you don't have the resources to, uh, to evacuate. Um, and now people will be making decisions about whether that this is a bit of a Bahamas diaspora, you know, that 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 they're looking at what happened. No, it's going to be five to 10 years to get this, uh, uh, to get the islands uh, back up and running. And then we'll move to other countries, well, other which thing, we saw actually with Puerto Rico. I don't know what is uh, close to a million haven't. Well, returned. the other thing is that, that, that we've high, been but. talking about how this is the longest streak in history of these category five hurricanes. So the chances of another category oh, yeah. three or four coming back within those 10 years because it's those same places that tend to get hit a lot. Right. 
Um, well, and just to explain, Bahamas. though, just to explain the science of this, it's not like the hurricane, you know, it's not like the hurricane sort of sees the island and says, go after it. I mean, it's obviously because of the temperature around <laughs> the land. That, yeah. Dorian no, no, said, no. Yeah. I had a bad time in the Bahamas. Yeah. So, so, so the reason why these islands are getting hit is because the waters are warmer. Correct. Um, and uh, and because, near, you know, then the, the, um, uh, the magnitude of the hurricane is that much greater. We're going to experience that in the United States. And to Trump's point that you opened up with, that we had a Category 5 last year. So well, I, know that's, I know that's a long time away in Trump time. Well, Irma but was a Category 5. For right? periods of yeah. time. Like, yeah. uh, well, Dor- Dorian is going to move back and forth. Uh, I well, mean, it's five to three things. to five to is four. It, it stalled for so long. Oh, my God. And then the, as it moved toward Florida, it got bigger again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, which was, again, because of, the, the, moisture, of the, water. the moisture of the air. Now, I will tell you what we are monitoring and what losers like me monitor um, is never before in the history of hurricanes. Well, on the, we, have a, we have a hurricane now formed um, on the Pacific side, and her name is Hurricane Juliet, spelled correctly. Mm. So we'll, we'll, we're watching Pacific for her. Pacific side of what? The, on, the, um, on the Pacific, not on the Atlantic. You mean that could hit California? Mexico and California, yeah. So. Meaning because we what? don't have hurricanes. Wait a minute. No, we don't have hurricanes called Juliet. You guys missed oh, my oh, hurricanes. Okay. hurricanes on the Pacific? Yes. I didn't think we did. Usually they're on the Atlantic, South Pacific, aren't they? Yeah. Wow. So one last thing about this. What are we doing as in the United States uh, to help the Bahamians? Are we doing anything? Yeah, we are. So the Coast Guard has deployed. They were busy enough with this horrible disaster in California. Um, uh, The Coast Guard has deployed to – it's all about – It's all about. You mean the uh, diving boat is what you're talking about? Yeah, the diving boat. Sorry. Um, It's disaster after disaster. So I have to – so so basically, just to let people know, what Bahama – what the Bahamas need now are two things. They need money. So um, so, – Contribute to uh, organizations and NGOs that you are familiar with. I've already gotten two emails about giving, you know, giving something to someone that I didn't know who they were. Uh, so you want to be careful. And then, and then the other is they need resources. Once again, don't just compile resources. Work through the Red Cross or the International Red Cross, and they'll be determined. Especially if you're, you know, like a Walmart. And so the Coast Guard is just going to do, do two things: they're going to bring stuff in and then take stuff out. And the taking stuff out will probably be critical patients. The uh, the this. Is, I will tell you, this is worse than Haiti in one way. Haiti was devastating because people died in a, the earthquake. Well, we don't, I mean, the numbers are going to be horrible in Bahamas. Uh, Bahama, from my understanding, is some of the islands do not have working run, runways. So you're, it's going to be the Navy and the Coast Guard. But as I said, the South America and the South American countries and the Caribbean countries do have mutually mutual aid um, uh, uh, agreements. So that, so there's not, it's not for want of will. There, there will be resources available. It's yes. just Speaking of the no runway thing, remember we talked yesterday with Corby Cummer about Jose Andres. Yes, he had I his, know. his other effort to feed people. Yeah. I learned this morning he's got a couple of helicopters he's yeah. now using for that yeah. very reason yeah. because there are no food and water. Runways it's and all that, that matters right now. And you know, there's thousands and thousands of sandwiches. Yeah, yeah, because they're um, high carb. You know, speaking of mandatory evacuations, Boris Johnson would oh like a God. mandatory evacuation <laughs> oh my God. from the EU. Could not, you do, not a good start, Could you Boris. do a Brexit? Oh, by the way, here, speaking of that, here's a great line. I'm sure everybody's heard this. this. This is a clip from Parliament yesterday. Uh, more than a dozen MPs, I assume people know this, defected yeah. from Johnson's uh, Conservative Party uh, in favor of taking control of the agenda there. Here's just a little clip. Listen carefully to what the cheering says as uh, per Juliet a minute ago. The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 
301. Not a good start, Morris. (laughs) (laughs) I could hear that a a million times. That is a good one. Not a good start, Morris. Well, you know, it's been so encouraging for me. It's been so encouraging for me to see what. I think almost tragically it's not happened in the United I States. I agree. That's the takeaway where here. The, 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 the British stood up for what they thought was right and said, the hell with this guy. I, I thought it was a wonderful well, Including members of his own party. No, yeah, I, think yeah. it's, I think yes. it's deeper. That, I mean, I think you know, we can laugh at it from afar and we love all their parliamentary you know, shenanigans and stuff. And it's interesting. But just away from the substance for a second, um, uh, uh, the, the resolution that they were voting on was essentially to halt parliament's exactly. authority in Brexit. Yeah. So they demand so basically they said you're not going to take away our power. It's a self-preservation that we are not seeing in with Republican senators exactly. who have done nothing related to oversight, related to legislation, whatever. And so um so it, it, it was while it's it's fun to make fun of the British, it's actually much more damning about us because they're at the, the this is a short term chaos for Britain, but it's actually a long term sort of, you know, uh institutional, you know, norm Norm setting again, which we're not getting by any institution here in the United States. Um, so uh, Bor- he's the most fascinating character, and I, you know, you ha- you 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 hate him, uh, Boris Johnson, and yet you know he's sort of fascinating in his in his just pure sort of non-Britishness in some ways. But he um, he rolled the dice. Uh, he you know he I guess it puts it different. Boris Johnson's sole motivation from um, from from deciding to support Brexit through uh, through the last couple of years with Theresa May to now was to become Prime Minister of Britain. That's it. That's that's the sole motivation. You could you could say you'll be Prime Minister if you're against Brexit, and he would have said I'll be Prime Minister and I hate Brexit. But having become Prime Minister as t- trying to deliver on Brexit, which of course now all the polling there's no there's no um, uh, majority, but if you combine all the polling, the majority of Brits want no, do not want to leave, do not want the consequences of leaving the EU. As the consequences of Brexit became clear, uh, everything from fears of insulin deprivation to, of course, an economy that's beginning to crash. Uh, uh, Johnson rolled the dice and said, I'm just going to I'm going to do this without a deal with the EU and move forward. He thought he had the votes. He didn't have the votes. And now uh, there will likely be a rush election. Now, he may well, want except he doesn't have the votes for that either. Well, he I may... learned he needs two thirds right. votes of parliament right. to schedule that election. That's right. So and the Labor Party, which was for a general election, now is opposed to because it because they want. Right. They, they want... want to put him on the spot, exactly. essentially. Exactly. And that's and the best moment was. um Churchill's no. Well, uh, he got no. Was the picture of Theresa May? Did you guys see oh, this smiling. in the back seat of yeah. the car being driven away, just <laughs> cracking up? And it just it felt Former so. Former PM, good. who's now a member of yes, Parliament, Parliament, she has yeah, to be. Yeah. yeah. So um, I stay tuned. You know, stuff is happening today, but um, but ultimately, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a condemnation of us um, uh, in many ways of what happened yesterday. So we're also getting emails. We said we're supposed to call hurricanes in the Pacific typhoons. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 I think Juliet is on. I think I saw it was. See where it is. Someone see where it is. I may right. be wrong on the geography. Sorry. Okay. No, uh, but it may just be Typhoon Juliet. No, it's called Hurricane. Hurricane Juliet. Okay. In any case, uh, before you go, uh, speaking of uh, uh, the EU, and we just finished this G7 in oh my France. God, right. I'm curious to get your I mean, it, virtually nothing. Everybody was tiptoeing around Trump 
for the most part. Yeah. And he was the outline of everything. We yeah. discussed earlier this morning on the climate change uh, meeting where he, uh, I can't, he not only did not show up and there was a photograph of an empty chair, but the explanation the president gave or his people gave was that he was in meetings that ran long with the heads of India and Germany. And they were, when that picture was taken, they were in the meeting that he couldn't get to because he allegedly was meeting with them, even though they weren't meeting with him. So in any case. But, wasn't but, he tweeting about like, like Deborah Mass? Like he was like tweeting about like random things while he was there too, about like Biden's gaffe. NASA is calling you Hurricane Juliet. Oh, really? And where yeah. am I? And you where are, am I? You were over the Pacific. You were over the Mexico. Oh, over Mexico. East okay. Pacific is what we're East being Pacific. told. One of our co- Thank so, you. Are there takeaways from this G7 other than the fact I that think... he wants the next one in Mar-a-Lago? Oh, I know. That's your takeaway. I know. So what, what is your takeaway? I mean, take I think, away? you know, it's a couple weeks ago. So I think, I think, uh, uh, I think it was a successful one knowing who the characters are. Because if you go in with, uh, uh, like the French president did, um, um, with uh, two goals. One, do no harm. And to try not to do anything. Right. So that was successful. Right. So the first time ever in however many years they didn't have a commute or whatever, some final document. Basically, was we are doing this simply to pretend like this. This madness is not happening in the United States. We will get through it. The other parties will commit to things that they're willing to commit to. We will push back on the notion of Russia's allowed back in with no conditions, which is essentially what Trump wanted. Well, he said he's just going to invite him yeah. to the next meeting yeah. as, sure. a, as his guest. Sure. Even if- yeah, that's like, like, like plus one. <laughs> Look at my friend. <laughs> I'm often plus one. And it's like, like, it's like, like you know, you go with you go with the cabinet secretary's plus one. You're like in the be back good. benching. Like, so glad I'm here. Look this is helpful. No, no, no. But this, this is, this is, this was uh, uh, Donald Trump's goal. He did what Putin wanted him to do, which was essentially uh, try to set a seat for uh, Putin to be back in. With no, I mean, folks, 2020 is around the corner now. No uh, uh, consequences for uh, Putin or Russia's involvement in our election, which we know is going to happen or which we know is happening, um, let alone uh, for the reason why he was expelled, which was for getting into the uh, uh, for invading the Ukraine. So um, so so I think it was, you know, if you're it was a very crazy August, and I, I think we just need to take a step back between the mass shootings and Trump sort of, you know, I, I'm not going to do a mental state, but you're sort of unraveling, I think is a safe way to put it, to or, or, or funkiness or whatever, to all these um, international incidents with um, uh, uh uh, that we saw G7 in North Korea and and, and China, um, we came out of it on the other side still uh, uh, still intact, and I think that's a success. But there's okay. no progress, people. The only progress now is 2020. So uh, before you go, we rarely do this, but I think we're going to play a soundbite a second time because it seemed to cause all oh, three of us the Boris great amount of joy here again. <laughs> and by the way, I know you guys intimated this. Can you imagine if our government operated like this, where the president of the United oh States had to go and sit in with Congress I take and they it. got to say what they really thought and back and forth? I mean, how great would that the be? Screaming. Here it is. Endless screaming this clip again there. from where more, more than a dozen members of parliament defected from Johnson's own conservative party. Here's the announcement of the vote, and then a little bit of a cheer about Boris. The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 301. Yeah. Not a good start, Thank Boris. You. 
I'm who not said a good that? Story. Do we know who said it? Do we know? I just, you know what? I, I have decided this is going to be my outgoing voicemail. It's just going to be not a good start, Boris. I have well, you know, no just idea. like baseball players, if they have walk-up music, you know, they each yeah. have their own music. That can be how we introduce you. Not a good start, <laughs> Boris. It is so fabulous. I know. Um, Juliet, it's good to see you. I know. It's great Welcome to be back, back, you guys. Thank you very see much, Juliet. See you later. Our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, joins us every week. She's an analyst for CNN, a former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Thanks, Juliet. Oh, I forgot. Up next, the six wives who made Henry VIII famous. It's the subject of a Broadway bomb musical now on stage at the ART and some horror movies. WGBH executive arts senator Jared Bowen joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Mardrigan. Summer must be officially over if killer clowns are now back on the big screen. This weekend, horror buffs can treat themselves to the opening of It Chapter 2, the sequel to 2017 sleeper hit It, to find out how the story ends for the Losers Gang and Pennywise, of course, the dancing clown. Here with us in Studio 3 to go over, give us his review of this and go over the latest arts and culture events in and around town as GBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen. Jared is the host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights at 8.30, right here on GBH2. Hello, Jared Bowen. Hello. Hello, Jared Bowen. Well, let's start with a, a, a local story. We talked about this um, weeks ago, about this memor- slave memorial on Faneuil Hall, which, which is going to be a... a, a area that was going to heat up, actually, to, to body temperatures so people could feel like what it felt to stand on where slaves were auctioned. This blew up into this massive mess, and Stephen Locke, the artist, has defended his decision to just say, forget it, I'm done, I'm leaving. Explain what he argued. Yeah, I mean, this has a, you know, I feel a little personally invested in this because I was filling in with either one of you. I can't remember when Steve Locke came on with the The mayor mayor. to announce this project. He announced it on Boston Public Radio. The mayor was very excited. He was very excited. Steve Locke is a longtime mass art professor uh, and artist in the city of Boston. He had a a big facade on the Gardner Museum that they turn over to artists and residents that depicted, uh, it was his take on Freddie Gray and what happened there. Uh, And next he moved on to what he thought was this fantastic plan to create this auction block uh, memorial uh, in Fannell Hall, not far from where there was slave trading. And this would be a memorial to people who were enslaved. Marjorie, as you mentioned, it would be heated to the exact body temperature so that even in the middle of winter, there would be this spot that would be warm. You would have the sense of the human body. But what happened is the NAACP, the Boston branch, uh, got involved, and they started to uh, have issues with this memorial, saying that there wasn't enough public input, uh, that they wanted there to be more community involvement, when, in fact, Steve Locke said that he had brought in community advisors. He had a board that was advising him. 
A lot of this came from a Kickstarter campaign, uh, so you had people who were funding this, but ultimately he decided that they had so much sway and so much voice that he retreated from it, and now, even worse, he's left the city of Boston. Yeah, not only dropped the the, the project, he's leaving town, he's so disgusted. Well, listen, and one, by the way, isn't there another piece in his op-ed in the Globe suggesting that it's not just the issue with the NAACP, but that some were suggesting he was sort of fronting for Mayor well, Walsh? Well, here's what exactly what he said. He, he talked about the uh, Boston NAACP coming after him, and then he said, I saw my work being weaponized in order to promote the notion that the city didn't care about having an engaged dialogue about race, that I was the quote-unquote House Negro pawn of a white mayor and not engage with the community. This is pretty damning charges he's making. It sounds like... Well, what happened is that right about the time that he announced his plans for this memorial, and I should say he's gone on to a great job in New York at the Pratt Institute, so he's so um, that was a major factor in his decision, too, to, to leave town, so he's going on to something great. But what happened at the time that he announced the plans for this memorial uh, and basically an art installation is that the, the conversation came about about changing the name of Fanel Hall, right. which he didn't really want to associate himself with. But because he didn't want to associate himself with that conversation, people began to accuse him of being in the pocket of the mayor. Uh, and I, I, you know, probably even seeing him come on your show with the mayor to announce this, th- this narrative began to be constructed. Uh, I was privy, unfortunately, to some emails because just about the same time I had him on open studio. And uh, so there was a lot of criticism against him levied uh, for people who were CCing me just so as a journalist I would be aware of this conversation. Uh, it's all very ugly and it's not pretty. And I, I think that he he was doing something provocative and different for public art in this city, and this is what happened. You know, a big picture question for you, Jack, because this is your area of expertise. Um, lots of times, this happened with the, the, the reconstruction, you know, after the World Trade Center disaster. It happened with the uh, Martin Luther King Memorial, that artists um, who are artists don't get to create their vision because they get committed to death and you wind up with things uh, that maybe aren't what we should have had in the first place. It's Why did you include the Martin Luther King Memorial in that? Because I think a lot of people are complaining that, that, that what was chosen is, is, is horrible, frankly. <laughs> but there was and, a ton of community input. There were a well, lot of that's meetings. What I, that's what I'm saying. Is that the way we should go? Is it people that know nothing about art, know nothing about these kinds of things, make the decision as opposed to the person? It would be like somebody coming in that knows nothing about radio and telling us what to put on our show every day because they're upset that we don't do, spend enough time on A as we do on B. I, I kind of find it distressing. It's a really interesting conversation. And you think, well, it is our city. And if you go to the Martin Luther King Memorial, then this is something that's going to be put right in the middle of Boston Common. And so people will have to pass by this. So do you give this widespread community voice? Do you bring in all of these voices? Or do you trust that there are artists who know what they're doing? I, I talked about on my show, on your show, rather, that this wasn't my top choice, the, the memorial that was picked. Uh, but you do want to have community involvement. But then again, I think you don't. I, it's interesting. Over vacation, 
mentioned that actually I was reading the this new biography of Daniel Chester French, who is one of the was one of the most extraordinary sculptors of the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s. He crafted the seated Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial, and even in his day, more than a hundred years ago, there were committees that had to decide how people would be rendered. He wasn't even trying to do anything abstract or different, but they 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 had to weigh in on, on Lincoln's face and stature and clothing. And this would happen for all of the, a lot of the memorials that he created in public spaces. So this is also not anything new. By the way, you can have, I would argue, you can have both things. You can have community input and you can have the ultimate decision being an art decision after having had input. And by the way, the reason this lock thing fell apart was not because of community input. It was because there was, because that, it appeared, went fairly well. He had an advisory committee or some such thing. It was politics. Was it not that went beyond individuals I, in the I community? Don't, I don't really know I mean, the NAACP was upset. A lot of people were, were angry about what they thought was the mayor's influence in this. I mean, But so, you know what? You know what? Think of, think of the most Im- impressive and moving war memorial you've ever seen. I know which the one is that I've ever seen. It's the Vietnam, Vietnam War, War Memorial yeah. in, in Washington, D.C. And remember the hoopla? She was this That's because of who the artist was, right? She, she was young. <clears throat> she was Asian-American. She was, I think she went to Yale. Uh, the, the Vietnam... The, but it the, happened anyway. Yeah. but it, So only, people had their say, and then it happened. Only after, uh, and I don't know exactly how it prevailed, but you had almost every veteran in America was beside themselves. I, I do think that things can be diluted when you have so many voices in a conversation like this, and I, I think that is what Stephen Locke's concern is, uh, and and frankly, what I've seen from from time to time. I, I think when you have smaller groups working in smaller areas, they they have a little bit more freedom. But when you have something so public, uh, then there can be this rancor. And frankly, now other cities are vying to have him come to their city to install this, so it's going to be Boston's loss. Tell me one last thing about this, so just to be totally clear about this conversation. Well, I am totally for community input. Don't go trying to tell us what to do on our show. That's, <laughs> I mean, don't even well, but think I guess, about it. But I guess, you know, just one last thing. It is, it is sort of arrogant that, that people who knew nothing about these kinds of things Get to decide. By the way, they, they didn't decide. Slock ultimately got disgusted yeah. and said, I'm leaving. By the After way, he, was he could have the said. He was called House Negro for a white man. Well, but, but, <laughs> by the way, and also in a moment of seriousness, how many. Is there a day that goes by that someone doesn't trash something we said on the radio as a result of that? What do we not do a segment? No. No, but ex- well, it is exactly, what it is. Because I think we have, we, have, we have journalistic freedom. And I guess I, I wonder why. Well, he why. had the freedom to proceed with this. I'm not criticizing him, but it wasn't like he was vetoed. It isn't like some authority that had final standing said, you may not do this thing at Faneuil Hall. He said, I've had enough. Well, I guess I would He's argue and he, leaves. he didn't have his artistic freedom and too many artists don't have their artistic freedom. And if you visited what we did down at uh, the World Trade Towers... Um, the museum there, the outside is fantastic, you know, with, with, the, with, the, with the fountains and the names of the people and stuff. And the inside, I don't know. Have you seen it? No. Have you? Uh, no, I haven't gone it's, to there. It's, it's, it's really, I think, almost gratuitously over the top. In any case, we're talking to Jared Bowen. And speaking of leaving town, uh, apparently the World War II Museum in Natick is leaving town. I read that story uh, in the Globe. There, I mean, talk about infighting uh, behind the scenes. What happened here? Well, and I haven't had a chance to speak with them, um, and so I'm going off the Globe reporting too. But the the World War II Museum it was it's kind of a fascinating story. This is all the collection of Ken Rendell, who has been collecting these artifacts and materials related to World War II for decades and decades and decades. I've 
interviewed him several times. I've toured the museum. He started collecting these materials in, I, I believe it was the 1960s, back when people really didn't want to, to collect them. They didn't want to associate because it was still so raw and fresh. But of course, in the intervening years, he's amassed this extraordinary amount of history from uniforms and, and documents, uh, a Sherman tank, and it's all been housed in Natick in, in this, for lack of a better term, warehouse facility uh, that's been open to school groups and tours. And unbeknownst to anyone, he sold the collection last year, a lot of the collection, not the entire piece, but the bulk of it, to uh, Ronald Lauder. The cosmetics guy? He's a, yeah, of that Air, Lauder yeah, yeah. fortune. And it was Mr. Lauder's prerogative to uh, basically shut down the museum so that he can now take hold of it and move it to Washington, D.C. And now, part of the deal was that it would be kept secret, that their deal. Is that not true? Right, exactly. Yeah. And basically what happened is Ken Rendell very much made every effort to keep the museum here in the Boston area, but he ultimately just couldn't get the funding. He couldn't get people to step forward and fund it here as opposed to relocating it to Washington or something like that. And I have to say, Ronald Lauder is a pretty extraordinary individual because he is also the person who has, has really paid attention to the ramifications of World War II, the Holocaust. He also founded the Neue Gallery in New York, uh, which is, uh, if you saw the woman in gold, the picture of Adele Bauer, uh, which was repatriated from Austria, or had to go back to Austria after it was looted. He was able to buy that piece when it was returned to her relatives, and he brought it to New York. Woman in Gold was made by the husband of uh, yes. Elizabeth McGovern. Simon Curtis, And her husband right was here, actually, out in the hall when yeah. we interviewed. Oh, we met him, right? I was really excited because yeah. I love that movie. Actually, so is there a back? I mean, there is a backstory. What's the backstory here about with the louder? What is the backstory? Well, you know. I don't think it's anything other than he is trying to take hold of this collection in a way that's going to be meaningful to him and, and probably install it in a context uh, that might even Im improve the way it's viewed. I mean, one of the fortunes of seeing it in Natick was that you could get up close and personal with these materials. There weren't necessarily barriers to keep you away. Now it's going to be presumably a, a more formal museum experience wherever it opens. Okay, let's move to the film front. We mentioned yes. the sequel to I think I saw it on a plane, and I, I'm embarrassed. I either... Loved it or I hated it. And I can't, and I'm sorry. I thought Thank a lot you, this morning. I can't remember. But give us a clue. Here is a clip from the trailer. It is called, a wonderful title, It Chapter Two. If it isn't dead, if it ever comes back, we'll come back to you. We didn't stop it. Well, I don't remember if I loved it. Oh, sorry. Okay, no. Thanks. Well, I don't remember if I loved it or hate. I do remember that I have not gone anywhere near a sewer since I saw. Right. Since I saw. Oh, is that what happens? People. He comes out of the sewer. In the first. Oh, you didn't see the first one. I did not. Yeah, he does. He's he's living in the sewer. Horrible. Now, is Stephen King involved in this, or is it just off the book? He's not involved in it, is he, or is he? I'm going to tease people by not answering this question. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. It was very astute of you to ask that. Oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Okay, so what's the deal in the movie? Uh, so I'll just decide for you that you loved the first one. <laughs> because I loved the first one, uh, which is about uh, this group of children called the Losers. They're, they're a small group, about 12, 13 years old. They're the Losers Club in Derry, Maine, where so many, this fictional town where so many of Stephen King's stories have some sort of base or thread, and children start disappearing, uh, and they figure out that it's Pennywise the Clown who's terrorizing this town. Uh, and so they essentially eradicate him in the first chapter, and now we have 
chapter two, which picks up uh, 20, about 27 years after 1989. And all of these, most of these kids, all but one, have dispersed. And the one remaining in the town uh, realizes that Pennywise is probably back because things are starting to happen in the town. And also there's this malaise that's taken hold. Uh, there seems to be this heaviness over the community. There's hatred and there's anger and there's crime. Uh, and so he calls all of the adults back and they're played by a pretty extraordinary cast, James McAvoy, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader. Bill Isaiah, Hader's in this, wow. Saffa, yeah. And so they're all invited mm. to come back uh, and all of these memories resurfaced, these memories that had dissipated about their youth. And so they have to fight Pennywise all over again. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't love this nearly as much as I liked uh. the first one, which ultimately became the highest grossing horror film of all time. And you're leaving this thing, Stephen King, answer it hanging? Is that what I'm you're going to do? i leave it hanging. Okay. But the right. problem here is that you know, as good as this cast is, they don't have the it really what I thought was extraordinary chemistry that this young group of kids that was assembled for the first one have. It, it becomes very long and bloated, lots of CG, and it, it felt I felt it lost a lot of the character. I, the I have a feeling one. I haven't seen it. I'm gonna either love or hate this one too. I just, <laughs> <laughs> did the kids did the kids uh, capture Pennywise in the first one? Uh, well, they they took care of him. They took care of them. Good for them. Yeah, Love to see the kids get their revenge. You know what the problem kids. is? I haven't seen this movie yet, and I probably will. But it's two hours and forty nine minutes. Oh long, my god! Which is really, These movies are too long. Too it's a long. long time. Two hours. Too two long. hours is enough. One fifty is what we're talking. And by the way, I know we don't say good things about Woody Allen anymore, but one of his great attributes was not the ninety yeah. minute yeah. film. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm if you can't no, say it, ninety it's, minutes. It's really great. Don't say Let's it. Let's talk about another film. <clears throat> The Farewell, a wedding is really a premature funeral. Uh, well, this is such a sweet film. This came out of Sundance, and I had been hearing so much buzz about it, and I was finally able to see it last week, and it's still playing in some of the independent theaters around here in Boston. Uh, but this is actually based on a true story, uh, and it's directed... Uh, um, uh, lost my notes here, Lulu Wang uh, is the writer and director, and she based this on her own experience where she learned that her grandmother was dying of cancer. Uh, and so, Oh, in, I heard her interview. Right, exactly. Yes. Uh, and so she goes back to China, and this is where the, the film picks up. Uh, in fact, uh, Aquafina, who a lot of people know, oh, usually man. as a rapper or in comedic roles, takes on her first dramatic role. She plays this young woman, Billy, who's living in New York, and she finds out from her parents that her grandmother is dying. But it's basically Chinese custom to not tell somebody when they have cancer or when they're dying in the fear that it will exacerbate the situation for the person. And so they construct this ruse that there's going to be a family wedding so they can all travel back to China. And Nai Nai, the grandmother, will have uh, is none the wiser about why the entire family is gathering. But this is really a heartwarming film. It's so well-directed, so beautifully written. You have this family coming back together uh, and keeping the secret, which is the main conflict, but also just trying to celebrate life and, and enjoying the moment and celebrating the moment, but also recognizing that there is mortality here that they're facing. By the way, we have a little clip from the trailer. This is, uh, well, the farewell. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Your nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. It's a pretty good bite. Yeah. You know, it, it was interesting listening to this woman being interviewed, though, because I kind of felt bad that they that the grandmother was left in the dark. 
You know, that it's not, and it shows just a cultural difference. A huge cultural difference. Yeah, in the United States, we would say she has the right to know and decide what to do, but but their culture is totally different on this, I guess. You're watching this film, too, and you're thinking, well, is there, not that I'm advocating for this, but you're thinking, is there merit to knowing that you're so sick? What does that do to you psychologically and to your body? Of course, you do want to get the treatment, and and she is taken to the doctors, and they still are pursuing everything, but they keep the results from her. Um, But it's really beautiful, and also the, the background you should know is that Lulu Wang went back to her grandmother's village and even, or, or city, I should say, and even to her neighborhood and even to her home to shoot some of the story. So, mm-hmm. so, so much of biography intercedes in the film here. So, uh, Jared Bowen, you and I both got to interview David Byrne uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, when he was here in advance of the Boston opening of American Utopia, which was on the road. Now it's here and it's pre-Broadway and then it's moving to Broadway. I, you know, I'm often asked by real people, I assume you are meaning outside this building, yeah. like, do you ever get really excited about somebody you're going to interview and, you know, tell us who? I was so excited to meet that. I was such a huge Talking Heads fan and Stop Making Sense, one of my all-time favorite concert movies ever. I mean, one of the two or three greatest. Before you talk about what American Utah, what do you think of him? Uh he is such a cerebral man. I mean, he's somebody who I think, I'll be curious about your impression too, because we haven't talked about this since we both did it, yeah. that who lives, who really lives in his head. I mean, you can you can almost see the way that he's looking at the world and interpreting, analyzing the world in, in a very different way. And of course, we've very physically seen this from in his advent of videos and song and, and performance throughout his very long career. He is really smart and really, I mean, he's just, he, it's, he's really, it's impressive. And this American utopia, you didn't see it when it was out on the road. Road, did you? I or, didn't know. Yeah, uh, and and it's opening. Is it in a couple of days here? Uh, yeah, it's opening next week at the Colonial the eighth Theater. or the ninth yep. or the eleventh or eleventh or something. And for a, a couple, and my understanding is, at least from having read a little bit before talking to him, in typical David Byrne kind of fashion, very stark set. Is it that there are no instruments on the set itself? Is that what it is? Nothing at all. He wants his he he and he his performers complete want to be unencumbered on the set. So basically what he did is he created this album, American Utopia, and had a sense that this had some larger presence than just concert form. And so he decided to create a theatrical version. It's previewing in Boston for two weeks, as he said, starting next week at the Colonial Theater, and then it'll go to New York. So this is a pre-Broadway tryout. And essentially what they've done is they've taken that concert experience, added more theatrical elements by stripping it down. So you'll see no chords. You'll see the drum set is not rigged on anything but human bodies none of them wear shoes they just they move around the stage they can go wherever they want and and it's there is this kind of this gray curtain behind them it just completely frees them up to interpret the music very uh unadult in in an unadulterated way uh and by the way both of our interviews i think are airing next week is that Uh, right mine is friday on open studio friday and mine is either monday or tuesday next week on boston well before you go i'm dying to hear about the six about (laughs) henry the eighth's wives it sounds like this is a real star turn another sounds like a hamilton kind of experience is it is it not it's very it's a a little bit like hamilton by way of beyonce by way (laughs) of adele and the spice girls (laughs) (laughs) so six is playing at the art right now and um this is also a pre- essentially a pre-Broadway engagement. It's been traveling uh, all across Europe. It started at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, London's West End, ART, also in Chicago, and then it'll go to Broadway in uh, February 2020. Uh, but this is the lives of the women, the, w- the wives of Henry VIII. Uh, as the song says, divorced, beheaded, died, di- <laughs> divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> 
So here you have the women, the wives, getting their story. Uh, Anne Boleyn, Catherine of Aragon, Jane Seymour. Uh, but it's all told through the guise of this pop concert, and that's why the, these modern musical sensibilities come in. But this is just so clever. They all take the stage. Uh, they're all telling their stories about why Henry VIII cast them off. Either he didn't think they were good-looking, they weren't interested enough in him, uh, or one was positioned as the temptress. So this is the reason he was able to cast them out. And I know you have a, a little bit of music for, from the show, too, which will really give you a sense of what it sounds yes, like. Yes, we do. This is The Six Wives of Henry VIII Reduced to a Single Rhyme, so they picked up a pen and a microphone. about to get overthrown. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. <laughs> Just for you tonight. We're divorced. I mean, there really is a Hamiltonian feel. I read that the guys behind this are 24 and 25 years the, old. They are so young, and this is not an immature piece at all. It doesn't need to be developed. There is so much said in the lyrics. It's so fun. The cast is terrific. Unfortunately, we're, I'm talking about this a little bit late, so tickets are really hard to come by at this point. However, I'm told that Wednesday matinees, they still have seats. There is standing room only at some performances, and uh, and you can get tickets sometimes about 48 hours in advance if tickets are, re are released. This is it's really almost taking on Hamiltonian proportions already and that people are so excited about this. By the way, and we should have said, when you mentioned a couple of weeks, I just looked up the David Byrne thing is uh, at the Emerson Colonial from the 11th to the 28th of uh, this month. So what are you doing on uh, Friday now that Labor Day is over? Uh, so again, we'll speak to David Byrne about American Utopia and then we take you to the Danforth Museum in Framingham, which is back from the brink. It almost closed a couple of years ago when they had an eviction notice, but they've resettled in Framingham and brought out some of the treasures of their permanent collection, and I would argue it's back and bigger and better than ever. Fabulous. We'll be watching. Good to see you, Jared. Good Jared, to see you. Thank you very much. Jared Bowen joins us every week. He's WGBH Executive Arts Editor and host of the TV series Open Studio, Friday nights at 8.30 right here on WGBH2. Thanks a lot, Jared. Up next, media maven Sue O'Connell is here. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie Egan. So is Mike Pence a strong <laughs> supporter of the LGBTQ community? Apparently is, because according to the vice president, people look need look no further than his lunch with leader of Ireland, who also happens to be gay. Here with us in Studio 3 to break down Pence's comments and the social norms and abnormalities of the day is media maven Sue O'Connell. Sue is the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News and the in-depth politics reporter for NECN. Hello, Sue O'Connell. Uh, hello, hello, hello. So when I thought I was going to talk to you about this today, there must have been times in your life as a gay woman that you've sat across from oh. people wherever who are virulently anti-gay. Every holiday. <laughs> what are you talking about? Every, every family reunion. What, you know, every time I... Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. So at the end of that holiday meal or reunion, yep. are all those virulently anti-gay people suddenly... 
on board no. with the gay rights movement? No, no. no. Okay. I, you know, it's it just it is astonishing to me. I mean, I, I was joking earlier that if Mike Pence thinks he's a pro, he's you know now pro gay because he's he's actually meeting with a, a gay person. Imagine if he actually touched a gay person. <laughs> I mean, what would that make That's him? That's right. Right? Like, you know, what if he were alone in a room without his wife with a gay person? What would that make him? You know, I mean, it's like. We'd be fair, though. Shouldn't there be like a certain number of lunches? If you, I would say if you do three <sighs> with a, a, a gay person. Then you're, you you're pro-gay. Uh, I think the yeah. presumption is that you're. You know, by the way, you know what's most unbelievable about this? It's one thing. Well, I don't even know how to put this. It's one thing to think it. Can you imagine that somebody sat down and typed a statement? They don't care. Saying this. Plus, there's no. Again, this is this not to go off on a tangent, but this is also what's wrong with the administration in that they don't have any professionals who are working on the administration who would say something like, "Gee, maybe we shouldn't put that in a statement and Mm -hmm. send it out." I mean, Jim. You have forced me to interact with more anti-gay activists. I have? Yeah, on your TV show, oh, on yeah. your radio programs. Oh, you're welcome. You know, there was one one wonderful moment I had in here with you with one of the anti-gay activists, and my daughter Ruby was with me. Was oh, this the guy from the Mass Family <laughs> Institute thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. And and you know, very polite, very civil, very you know, good conversation. And I was sharing how she had had a chronic illness, which which I have shared, and she has shared. And on the way out, he said to her, um, "I'm praying for you." And we got in the car, and Ruby said, "You know, I think he's praying for me not because I'm sick, but because you're my mother." <laughs> So is, it has become a joke oh around our God. house. Like, I took it as, oh, that's nice. That's sweet. Like, if anybody wants to pray Hold for on. me, I'm happy to take it. But, but it was, I think, more because you have a lesbian for a mother. But let me ask you this, though. How do you get to the point where the steam isn't coming out of your ears? I mean, because that's a lot. Because I'm right. Cause you, no, I so, mean, because I just, honestly, and I don't mean that in a in, a, in an arrogant I'm right, but there's a moral high ground around a, lo- a lot of this behavior and yeah. denying people rights or uh, thinking of them as less than human is is immoral and wrong, regardless of if it's a political or a religious point of view. I mean, I remember being on your show on any scene. I'm going to have to have a little therapy now <laughs> after this, where a woman from the Mass Family Institute was on. And she told me that she thought that that I was mentally ill because I was a lesbian, you know, that I had had some kind of developmental problem in my attraction towards men. She said this on NECN on the air, you know, and at some point you want to look at them and think, well, well, I feel bad for you. I remember another time years ago. I think it was when you both had the the show together on NECN on the week. I was that was legendary. That that was. (laughs) No, Marjorie doesn't even remember it. Remember what Alex Beam wrote? <laughs> Alex Beam called under, under the, the radar. radar. Show. I thought we were terrific. And but... Jimmy Tingle was coming on after after me. And I was on with some woman. I don't know who it was. Very religious, very Catholic, very anti-gay. And she said something. This was before I was a parent. She said something like, well, I do know that if our kids went to school together, I would allow them to have a play date at your house. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't allow my kid to have a play date at your house. And Jimmy Tingle was just like, how did you not kill her on in the air. I mean, it's the the astonishing amount of um, stupidity that you hear. Well, you know, they're... it's even worse, though. It, 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 this is the vice president of the United yeah, States. This is the vice president. This is of the United not States. just some uninformed, no. bigoted no. soul. This is an uninformed, bigoted vice president who of thinks the he's United made States. progress because so, he's able to have a meal with an openly gay person. Let me ask person. you another question. Who happens to be the leader of, of this a, country, yeah, right, by right. the way? So the old line was always, well, you know. 
you realize that you know lots of gay people, and once you know someone who's gay, then you think, mm-hmm. what is the big deal here? Do you want, does it matter from the other side whether someone like Mike Pence sits down with this leader of, of, of Ireland and his partner and has a lunch with them? Does it matter to him and his wife? At the end of their lunch, do they say... You know, maybe we well, they should. might. No, they, they might. might. I, I think mean, that I, is I, why yeah. everything has changed yeah. hugely. Yeah. As no, as... I agree. I think I hope that they would they would go home, and Mike Pence would say, "Well, they're kind of regular, you know. Not that you have to be regular to have civil rights, but I mean, there is, you know, the, the, it's always the people that are the least offensive, and I'm using air quotes on that, that move the ball forward yeah. because people can say, I recognize this this these people. Do you have any old shows of mine, other ones you want to mention, or can I move on? <laughs> Speaking of Vice President I replayed Pence, them in my head over and over, Jim. When the Vice President was asked by reporters about his decision to stay at, at Trump National in a small town in Ireland, which is a mere 200, 200 miles, miles from his meetings in Dublin, Mike Pence first said it was for personal reasons, then said it was logistically easy for the Secret Service to accommodate him there. Here's, here's what he said. I mean, it's deeply humbling for me to be able to come back to Ireland and have the opportunity to go to the very hometown of my mother's grandmother. We'll have dinner tonight at a little pub that I worked at when I was 22 years old when I came over here shortly after my grandfather passed away. If you have a chance to get to Dunebeg, you'll find it's a fairly small place. Uh, and uh, the opportunity to stay at Trump National in Dunebeg to accommodate <laughs> the unique footprint uh, that comes with our security detail and other personnel. Uh, made it logical. By the way, everybody who, uh, former Secret Service people who are experts in the area said it has no relevance to the ability of the Secret Service to protect you. They can arguably do but it. But plus, anywhere. he went back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, yeah he, he traveled three hours to do yeah. bag at the end and stay sure. at the place. It, yeah. That would have been sure. okay. But there were caravans and yeah. air, No, and it's ridiculous. And, he's pl- and, and it, there was a report that Pence is paying for his family's expenses out of his own pocket. But so, we're paying for yeah, we're him paying to stay for him. at Donald Trump's so property. So it's, it's just a multi-level, you know... Violation of the Emoluments Clause that of the United and, States and, and kissing the buttocks of your boss. I mean, we well, have to give, Pen- we have to give Pence that. some credit here. I mean, Maybe he's he actually... Be thinking about... He's surviving in a way, remember, in a, a way Sue, that others aren't. I think it was about 17 years ago on NECN, you and I were doing a show on <laughs> Dunebeg. Do you remember that? I do indeed. The castles of Dunebeg, ca- I think We're doing a tour of the castles of Dunebeg. We went and to County had, Cork, where my people are from. A virulent, anti-gay <laughs> castle hater. And then I had to stay at your family's property in exactly. order to, you know. Can we discuss, uh, it, well, those are those do matter, but obviously they matter. But it, yes. a, a huge issue. Supreme Court has taken up a handful, of ca- a couple of cases that will determine whether uh, pre-existing anti-discrimination laws uh-huh. cover transgender people and uh, cover LGBTQ uh, 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 people, uh, I don't. I haven't looked at the law, mm-hmm. and obviously, as a matter of equity and humanity, and I think everybody knows what side I'm on. But I assume legally, this is a fairly. It's not a slam dunk. Oh correct? no, no. I at mean, all. I think anybody. I don't mean just because of the no. makeup of the court. Just I mean because of the language of the statute. Yeah, yeah. You never really know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court, anyway. So, uh, but first of all, you've got the issue of uh, in I think 28 states across the country, you can be fired if someone thinks that you're LGBT or Q. You don't even have to be gay. You can be being perceived as being gay, and you can be fired because there are no protections. The Equality Act that they're trying to put forward on a federal level that would 
make it illegal to fire people for being gay, you know, is obviously not moving forward under this administration. And you've got these three cases. I think there's three cases that are part of the Supreme Court. One is a person, uh, a transgender woman who worked at a funeral home who was fired because of the way she dressed, even though she dressed appropriately for being at a funeral home. She, in the eyes of her employer, was a man and was therefore not dressing appropriately. You've got a skydiving instructor, a male, who um, made a a joke to the client who, because, you know, you're strapped on to the the client as you jump out of the plane. And he made a joke just basically saying, don't worry, I'm gay, you know, to try and lighten the mood. And he was fired for coming out at work. And then you have uh, a a town employee who was accused of embezzling funds, I think, in another case. Um, But it turns out that it looks like the reason that they were fired was not because of any actions on the job, but because they were gay. So the issue becomes is Title VII, which protects people from being fired because of being a man or a woman, if this, in fact, protects uh, gay people, if this protects lesbians, if this protects transgender people, and also just the basis, uh, the basic fairness of work. Over the years, many polls have shown that Americans believe that if you show up and do an honest day's work, mm-hmm. you should get paid, right? If you're just going to work and doing your job, you shouldn't be fired just simply because you're you're perceived as being gay. But to your point, Jim, <clears throat> the language about whether or not uh, Title VII, which protects men and women based on gender, expands to this, if you want to think it's expanding or if it's already covered in this, is I think what the letter of the law is going to be on. I mean, this is what the marriage case was also ruled on, uh, marriage equality across the nation. You know, if a man can marry a woman, a man should be able to marry a man because excluding them from being able to marry someone of their own gender would be sex gender discrimination. So I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but we don't know what's going to happen. But, I mean, but the know? reality is, even though I said the, about the statute itself, I'm acting like I'm some expert we on the statutory language, which I'm not. Obviously, where the Supreme Court wants to end up, they can find a way to get there. Yeah. I mean, as we know, the right to privacy does not exist, exist. in the Constitution. Yep. It's not enumerated in the Constitution. That was the basis for some of the most mm-hmm. important uh, 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 rights granting or rights reassuring cases in the history of the United States of America. So obviously, if they choose to conclude, I assume by five to four, that all Americans are protected from any kind of discrimination, they can do it. But they can also fall back, it appears to me, sadly, on the letter of the statutes Mm -hmm. and screw people. What do we know about Kavanaugh and gay rights? You know, it's it's. I keep going back to uh, before the the accusations uh, regarding Kavanaugh's behavior in the hearing. You know uh, that Christine came Blasey Ford. Yeah, came forth in the hearings, and there were a number of somewhat progressive uh, lawyers who were saying you should be happy with Kavanaugh because. He's uh, a conservative, but he's a fair conservative, and he's a conservative who will look at the letter of the law. So, um, you know, we've forgotten about that since the accusations that were against him and through the hearings. Um, I'm not exactly sure where he stands on a number of issues, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Of course, I was cautiously optimistic about Attorney General Barr, too. Yeah. And And Gorsuch. What do we know about Gorsuch? I don't know, actually. Okay. So we don't know. We'll see. But Robertson, we'll see what, you know, Roberts has, has been... A bit more, yeah, a bit more moderate than people expected him to be, and we've got the, you know, the precedence of uh, the same-sex marriage ruling, which was based on gender. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully that will get us there. You know, you mentioned Blasey Ford, who I hadn't thought about in a while. Has she done one interview or anything since the hearings? No, I mean, I mean, look at which speaks once again to the the. 
well, genuine that, nature the authenticity of her. Of, excuse me. Yeah. That's another great point because people talk, the president talks about this all the time. Oh, they want to write a book. Oh, they exactly. want to make a yeah. lot of money. And when you look at these cases, there may be a couple, but for like it's 90% of them, it's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Their lives are, they're, they're, they're ruined. Ruined. Yeah. They're not going out and making money. So that's a or the, Or even if not ruined. I mean, uh, Anita Hill has not chosen to do huge numbers of mm-hmm. things either, even though she lives in our community. She doesn't do a hell of a lot. Right, she does, very low profile. She picks yeah. her spots I shouldn't have and, said ruined. Their lives are not ruined. No, but, but some they, people, but, yeah. But they're, but they're pummeled on, 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 the, on right. you know, the internet. They have to, like, their houses are attacked, yep. all these kinds they of things. Move. Well, she yeah. had to move, right? Yep. Exactly. They remember her lawyer said she had to move. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to uh, Sue O'Connell. So I read an interesting piece, and I can't remember where I read it about a week ago while I was on vacation, that uh, lesbians... <laughs> uh, are uh, are uh, not Lesbians. in the tank for Pete Buttigieg, no. the first openly gay, uh, serious candidate for the presidency of the United States. And I love the reason why. Share it with us. Because he's not a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the problem? Because exactly. he's not a woman. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a piece in Politico, which... Um, Politico, that's what yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Elise Cherry, who, who's quoted in it, who's a great Massachusetts, a, f- a former Revere girl like myself. Oh, really? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's not that Pete is not appealing. Mayor Pete isn't appealing. And isn't it great to have somebody who's openly gay, who's running for president, and a ser- you know actually has a serious challenge here. It's no one's taking it lightly. Uh, I think it is interesting that Mayor Pete is a lot of people's second. So people mm-hmm. are supporting Elizabeth Warren and giving money to Pete Buttigieg. So I think he just ramped up with a lot of staffing across Iowa and um, and in New Hampshire. And it's from that money of people who want to see him do well. But for many lesbians, for many women, you know, you talk about identity politics. It's not always a dirty word. Oh, many lesbians want to see a woman get elected. Many lesbians want to see uh, uh, maybe they're lesbians of color and they want to see a woman of color get elected. So it's not a slam dunk for Pete Buttigieg, not because he's not a good candidate, but I think because there's a, a, a choice out there. There's a there's a buffet menu out there right now, and it's not just about Pete. Speaking of buffet menu, log cabin uh, Republicans mm. in a surprise to – first of all, you should describe <laughs> who they are, what their organization yeah. is. Uh, in a surprise move, have uh, endorsed Donald Trump, and there's been a huge amount of blowback, including amongst some of their own leadership. Yeah, I, I, I found this out uh, over at uh, NECN that I should probably explain what log cabin Republican means because a lot of the kids were like, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the heck is log cabin? Uh, Abraham Lincoln was the very first Republican. Uh, and many look at, you know, since he was born in a log cabin and grew up in a log cabin, his values were something that uh, LGBT Republicans would embrace. And that's Republicans who care about the things that Abraham Lincoln cared about. So they called themselves the log cabin Republicans. Um, they they are. I'm laughing because I feel like, again, we've had this conversation for like 30 years where. Yeah. They almost get serious. They almost get like they're going to be a credible political organization. And then something like this happens where uh, they didn't endorse, I think, in the last presidential election. And then they've come out and they've endorsed uh, President Trump in advance. The chair in New Hampshire, uh, who was the former chair of the GOP, state GOP, she resigned. And yeah, then Jennifer the Horn. executive director of the of uh, the Law Cabin Group uh, resigned. It is perplexing and befuddling as to why when they have a candidate like Bill Weld who's running, who was on the cover of The Advocate when he was governor of Massachusetts, who if you are going to be an LGBT Republican organization and you have a Bill Weld, why you would endorse 
a, a Donald Trump when they say, you know, he wants to decriminalize homosexuality across the planet, which is a very complicated issue I won't get into the weeds for, but it's not what it seems. He says he wants to wipe out HIV from the planet within a certain amount of time, which is a great high and mighty thing. But at the same time, he's slashing budgets and doing things that prevent people from getting the care that they need. So I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of a more anti-LGBT president that we've had. Uh, all things so considered, why? so what's the yeah? What's I the, think it. I think it's for political power, or just or just they're just confused and and think they're trying to be relevant in some way, or they want to be on his good side. Are they mostly now, men? Oh, absolutely, they're mostly so they, men, mostly white men. And I, I would wonder if money is if there are a lot of rich white men. Probably, but again, they could have. If I were in charge of a log cabin Republicans, I would have endorsed Bill Weld. Yeah, and I would have I would have been one of the few Republican organizations who was willing to take a stand against the president but still stay true to their values. Because if Bill Weld doesn't represent the log cabin Republicans' values, nobody does. But what so, is their explanation? Did they give Well, one? they did. They're saying that he, the decriminalization oh. of homosexuality and his his AIDS goal to, to, yeah. to, 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 to get rid of AIDS by the end of the whenever he said. He's just making stuff up. Well, and they, uh, you left out, obviously, the most important part. They also mentioned that his vice president had lunch with a gay guy. <laughs> More lunches. Maybe everyone will get a lunch with a vice president. I'd go for that. God help us. Now, before you go, uh, you know one of the things – we added this to the list because this is driving me absolutely crazy. Uh, I think most people know as important as it is who the president of the United States is, not just because it's important in and of itself, but as Marjorie and I have been saying for the 20 years we've been on the air, it's all about Supreme Court. That's really at the end of the day what matters more than anything else. What matters almost as much in this election – is who controls the Senate. If you're a Trumpian, you want to make sure that Mitch McConnell continues to rule there mm-hmm. with an iron fist. And if you're not, uh, you're supporting a Democrat, he or she can be a great president if Mitch McConnell is still the leader of the Senate. It's obviously you're not going to get very far mm-hmm. on most issues. I don't understand what I consider to be, in most cases, the abject selfishness and cluelessness of high-profile accomplished Democrats who like Bullock in Montana, mm-hmm. like Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who almost beat Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. like Stacey Abrams. She shouldn't be on the list. I don't. Who think. is? Uh, why shouldn't she be on the list? Because I think she's who, doing in Georgia. Some, by the way, I think she's doing a really big deal. This voter suppression uh, campaign that she's running, the anti-voter suppression. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big deal. Oh, you mean instead of running for Senate, that hire she's staff actually, yeah. and run for yeah. a Senate from Georgia. I mean, yeah. it, 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 can it, I don't? Well, let's keep her out of the mix for a second. When you look at O'Rourke, who is not going to be president of the United States, nope. and Bullock, who is not going to be president nope. of the United States, what possible rationale is there for not doing what Hickenlooper did, is looking, seeing that you're not going to be president, you could be a Democratic mm-hmm. senator replacing Cory Gardner, in his case, in Colorado. And again, this is if you want Democrats to take over. Why isn't there more pressure on these people to uh, 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 to do what I consider to be, if you're a Democrat, the right thing. Yeah, I think I think because the institutional big D power of the party um, is is not as strong as we think it is or might be. So there's nobody pressure. There is nobody there to pressure them to to get out and to say, listen, why why are you doing this when you could be doing that? And I also think the appeal of being able to uh, amass a nationwide network of donors and volunteers is too appealing to them in this this sort of long term than looking at the short term. So I think while it would be important for Democrats to have those people in the Senate to take over the Senate, and if a Democrat wins, to, to give them the, the, the power that they had before, which they, they didn't use, what you know the Beto's of the world are going to come away with is this massive 
uh, plug-in to donors across the country, which he can use later. Well, Bullock's not even making the debate, though. I mean, so you could say O'Rourke because he's still in the top But they still have the connections. They still have the the, the boots on the ground. But don't they have time? To like you know drop out in October and then go back and run. They have a whole year. They do, the but I think they it's do. fair to yeah. say that the longer you run, the bigger your base is going to be. Yep. You know, I, I'm sure you remember. I think it was in 1987. Was it on your you show? You and I were on some uh, community <laughs> access cable thing, and we discussed Channel Steve Bullock's Revere. record in high school. Yes, do you in remember high school. That? Yes, high I actually school, was, I was on Montana television in high school, high, I was, Jim. Yes. I was on WRHS TV. That's what it was in Revere on Channel 13. Was aired across the city, and that's how. My TV career was launched. The first non Reverian <laughs> host, I believe, I was. Of that. Some of my fondest memories yes. go back to that. That's story. why my fourth grade teacher is proud of me, Jim. Is that just true? so you know. Yes, Jim. By the way, didn't I bump into some, yeah, Where you did I bump me. into your teacher? I don't know. I just got a weird. I love the weird texts I well, get tell, from Jim. That was great. Explain what that was. So I've... Jim bumped into my fourth grade teacher, Jill, Jill Shaw, Jill, oh. who's now Jill Clock, Jill Shaw. I'm so sorry if she's listening. I can't remember where we bumped into each other. I, I think we're down the Cape, I think. I think you're on it? vacation. Because okay. okay. I get these bizarre texts from you at various. Is there things. a Whole Foods hot bar down <laughs> No, but she was, she was, didn't she say how proud she yes, was yes. of Sue? And yes. It was actually really She touching. was the teacher. Oh. Jill was the teacher in my life who changed everything for oh. me. Like, just was, I was a, like, sickly, depressed, little weird kid, and Jill Shaw, you know, totally tapped it. She diagnosed my dyslexia. She did all these, she told my mother I needed glasses. I mean, all <laughs> these things that we take for granted now, but back in the 60s, you didn't get screened for or tested no. for. Um, and just totally gave me a review at the end of fourth grade saying that Sue should be in history or or politics. She's tuned to the, to the pop Great. culture and, and, and told me I was a good writer. She told me that I should be a writer. So hats That's off to great. Jill Shaw and, and Jim on his vacation doing Wherever my This Is Your Life tour for Sue O'Connell. <laughs> I did a show with Jill Shaw back in the early 70s. I remember it like it was yesterday. I don't remember oh, what we were talking about. It was a long time ago. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you very Sue. much, Media Maven. Happy post-Labor Day. And to you, too. <laughs> I'd love to call you Media Maven. It really yeah, makes me sad. happy. Oh, no, it's happy. <laughs> <laughs> Media Maven. Sue O'Connell joins every week. She's the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News and the Eclipse political reporter for NECN. Media Maven Sue, thank you very much for coming up. Our TV man, Bob Thompson, is here with his best and worst TV moments of the week. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. For some TV fans, seeing is not believing. Smelling is. On Monday, fans of The Office got to have a real sense of what it was like to have dinner with Michael Scott and the gang when, I think it's pronounced Cozy TV, rebroadcast the episode The Dinner Party in Smell-O-Vision. <laughs> Joining us on the line to go over the latest TV developments, plus his best and worst TV moments of the week, is Bob Thompson. Bob's a professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications. That would be at Syracuse. Hello there, Bob. Hello, and I was terribly excited about this. This is my uh, best of the week. It of was kind of dumb, but uh, <laughs> sometimes dumb is just what the doctor ordered on exactly. Labor Day weekend. Yeah. I remember the dinner party. This is the rebroadcast of one of their most famous episodes. Is is it not? From... It, it is. 
Right. Now, if you've never seen an episode of The, of the Office, this is a very different kind of episode. It was based loosely on uh, the hyper-grim uh, Albie play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? We watch a relationship collapse at a, uh, uh, <clears throat> at a dinner party. But it was a really interesting uh, uh, episode. And Cozy TV, which is this over-the-air nostalgia digital channel, uh, in Boston you guys get it over uh, WBTS, channel 8.3, I believe uh, uh, I believe it is. But they've started uh, uh, airing office episodes, so their big promotion was to, you'd go onto their Facebook page, uh, and you'd get them to send you a card. And uh, they'd put these little uh, uh, icons up uh, five times during the episode, and you'd get to smell the candle, you'd get to smell the main course, you'd get to smell the wine, the burgers that they have after they leave the party, uh, and all the rest of it. And this is part of a long tradition. Theater owners tried to add smell to silent films back in the day. Um, uh, there was one uh, uh, film was actually released in theater where it was tied to the soundtrack, uh, Spy Kids 4 did Smell-O-Vision, uh, Rugrats Go, Go, uh, Go Wild did it, uh, and of course in 1981, Polyester by none other than John Waters was probably the only true masterpiece of uh, uh, Odorama, as, uh, as he called it. And believe it or not, that is being released in about a week and a half on the Criterion Collection of Masterpieces of Cinema uh, uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. We've had John in here a lot. He is really, he is, this is something else. By the way, we were going to do it on the radio. When I put fish in the microwave, we thought it'd be great for the people at home in their office. This is the dinner party where Michael was this lunatic girlfriend, Jan, and she's screaming and yelling, and they're all screaming and yelling, and she's, her perfume is Serenity by Jan. Is that the, is that the dinner party we're talking yes, about? Yes, this is the one. As a matter of fact, you get to smell Serenity oh, by Jan. It's God. the very first so. uh, uh, scratch opportunity. Um, so, for my famous uh, Tuesday free lunch screenings uh, next week, I've managed to procure four unscratched cards. Oh, that's great. I recorded the uh, cozy TV thing, and we're going to start out uh, uh, showing the students um, uh, this episode. They're going to get to scratch it, and all of the free lunch is based on the same cuisine served at the dinner party. Oh you know, one God. of the things I, I read when I, love time that on my show. when I was reading about The Office recently, I, I know you know this, I didn't realize this, Steve Carell never won an Emmy for playing Michael Scott. That is really... That's unbelievable to me. Yeah, he was really good. Yeah, in that, that, show. that is one of those. Uh, uh, you know, it's just like The Wire. Uh, not only didn't win Emmys, it didn't get nominated for uh, uh, any, but a very small number. Uh, and it's why you know the Emmys is an indication of something, but it's certainly not an objective indication of. Uh, of quality. The office, I think, holds up extraordinarily well. And it's like, you know, kind of like curb your enthusiasm. It's, it's sometimes painful to watch because you're so embarrassed for Michael and some of the other characters. <laughs> and the dinner party is uh, one of the most painful. Uh, oh, my uh, gosh. It's, it's like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's really difficult to uh, to get through. But at least now we get to smell it as well as see it. You know, by the way, I wasn't going to mention this by today because I, I mentioned the, office, this. Uh, the producers had anything to do with this. I think it's the, uh, I think it was Cozy TV that put this all together. Although I'm sure they had their cooperation. Let me just say, since you brought it up, not me, so I can't. Uh, I won't. People won't blame me for beating a dead horse. I am now finally on season three of The Wire, and as I told you, it took me a decade and a half to finally get into it. This is television unlike anything 
I've ever seen. And maybe when I finish the final season, season five, we can talk about it again. It is just, I'm like a lot of people who just couldn't get into it the first and second and third time. Gonna, it is, yeah, I'm going to have to go back now it and watch it. It is beyond brilliant in every single Yeah, I've way. been through it at least five times, and oh I God. see not only some new things every time I watch it, it's like watching a whole new show every time I watch it. It's brilliant. It. So what's your, that was your best. What's your worst there, Bob Thompson? Oh, let's give the worst. And I don't know how we have decided to assign when uh, uh, great uh, actors pass, but let's give the worst to the uh, uh, passing of Valerie Harper. Um, who, of course, created one of the great characters uh, of American television. We, of course, had, you know, Lucy and Ethel and those types. But Mary and Rhoda, I think, were a unique, and they would, you know, we'd go on to get Laverne and Shirley and all the rest of it. But the two of them, I think, were came at a time where uh, we didn't see those kinds of relationship, and she was scrappy and she was insecure, but at the same time she was empowered. Uh, and she starts out on the Mary Tyler Moore show, which CBS would not allow Mary Richards to be divorced. She had just left a long-term uh, uh, relationship. However, by the time Rhoda's spinoff came, uh, Rhoda uh, uh, got separated from Joe in a special two-part episode. So that uh, those shows really did make some significant progress in what you could do on television. Well, let's play a little clip from this. And this is in 1974 when things were really beginning to start to change. Uh, this is uh, wrote the pilot opening of Rhoda from 1974 with, of course, Valerie Harper. Hey, let me go ahead of you. i got to make the plane to New York and I'm late. Hey, we're all going to New York and we're all late. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm first class. Hey, listen, mister. In this line, there's no class. In every sense of the word. She was, yeah, she was a great character. She was a great character. And that's there was a two-part episode where she gets uh, married in uh, Rhoda, which is, uh, it's, it's very 70s, but uh, in 70s terms, it's one of the funniest sitcom episodes I've ever seen. By the way, we had a couple of weeks, I was just, we, we had uh, Jared Bowen on earlier, and I was talking about meeting David Byrne and interviewing him, and how I was in awe. We had Ed Asner on a couple of yep. weeks ago, and speaking of being in awe, just the the the, the alum of that of those shows were just uh, Otherworldly great television. It was just, it was great. It was yeah, great it, really, it really was. And you know, Rhoda was something, I'm, I'm sorry, Valerie Harper was something of a miracle in that I remember getting an emergency call. I had to go into a radio studio in 2013 to do an obituary interview for Valerie Harper. She was given uh, very little time to, uh, uh, to live. Uh, and I heard part of that interview playing on uh, uh, public radio in 2019. So she survived a lot, lot longer than anybody was expecting her to. So we've mentioned, uh, discussed with you in the past, that the Obamas, as in Brock and Michelle, were finally going to get into uh, television production, or at least film production. So here's a clip from the first. It's Netflix's uh, American Factory. And it's from Higher Ground Productions, which is uh, the uh, production company of the Obamas. Here it is. We stand here today uh, with a plant that's closing, but I'm extremely proud of the people that work in this plant here. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home. We lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. 
This is a historic project that is going to help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. And by the way, this this factory, I think in Dayton, was actually featured in a Frontline piece that yeah. we, where we had the producer on a couple of months ago. This is uh, the GM plant closes down, and a Chinese-owned operation op- uh, 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 opens with great fanfare, but it's not all good news down the line, correct? Right. Uh, okay, so first of all, this debuted the, uh, the night of the last time we talked, way back on mm-hmm. August 21st. So we talked uh, that morning, and it, uh, Netflix dropped it uh, uh, that day. Um, and, yeah, as you point out, it was a GM factory, and the, this Chinese company repurposes it to become an auto glass uh, right. uh, manufacturer. Now, this is under higher ground, the Obama's production company, but they didn't make it. They didn't have anything to do with it. They saw it at a film festival. They liked it under their uh, distribution. They are going to be doing other stuff that they'll be more involved in. I think the uh, Stephen Douglas thing and uh, I think Michelle Obama is very uh, interested in some show about vegetables or something like that so they're going to be doing other uh, uh, other stuff but this is just something that came under their uh, umbrella seeing though this th- how these two cultures this chinese company that comes in and uh, uh, uh has to work with these american both administrators and workers was an absolutely i think fascinating thing to watch and if nothing else after the end of watching this i so much more appreciated people who work in factories. Uh, that's not something I have a whole lot of experience uh, observing. Do you have any, I mean, by the way, part of the problems that arise about their inability to deal with the union there and that they being the company management, do you have any idea what attracted the Obamas? Is there a, a, a takeaway from this that they thought was important for the American people to well, I mean, I don't mean to be oversimplified, uh, over uh, simplifying in this, but I think it was a good documentary exploring the idea of how uh, work is going to be redefined in an inevitable globalized environment. I and uh, I think uh, I, I think they want to show. I think the Obamas want to bring and expose to larger audiences good material. And a lot more people are going to see this thanks to the fact that they've put it under their umbrella uh, than would have right. seen it at the film festivals that it was playing. At. Well, one last thing about this. It, it, from what I read, it sounds like it's also a, a uh, you know, a clash between the American worker, the rugged individual, you know, factory worker, and the Chinese worker who comes from a communist culture and has uh, different expectations about what work entails. I mean, that that seems to be a lot of what this is about, too, right? Right. It, it is very much a, uh, and I put this in quotes because it's an old cliche, but it's very much one of these old East versus West kinds of, uh, or East meets West, I suppose uh, I should say. And in neither case, I think both of them are treated with uh, a, uh, a great deal of respect and, uh, and understanding. These are two different approaches to uh, how to run these uh, things. And, of course, the Chinese uh, uh, management that comes in, 
uh, has got a lot of experience of doing things very, very efficiently. Um, and, of course, the American workers, who are by no means slackers, they are hard workers, uh, but the effect is whether they are as effective workers. And then that brings the whole question of, uh, uh, you know, effective versus management style, yeah. union versus non-union, yeah. and all those important questions. No, i got to watch this one. I, think I can't wait to see the one on vegetables. So, vegetables, uh, I tell you, a million different ways to prepare Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I mean, who can't get behind that, you know? So Leslie Jones is yet the latest in a long line of SNL stars to uh, uh, depart. This is a voluntary move on her part, is is it not? Yes. She was not fired, and I'm sure they are uh, going to be sad to uh, lose her because we're going to miss her. She's uh, been a very important part of some of the strongest things in what has not been a really strong last season and a half. Uh, her Upper East Side stuff, uh, uh, Miss Rita, Whoopi on The View, her stuff on the Olympics. I mean, there's a long list of uh, stuff Leslie Jones uh, brings to that show. And the very fact that she's not a kid I right. think, brings a voice to Saturday Night Live uh, that's interesting. We thought we might lose not only Leslie Jones, but also Kate McKinnon, which would have been an awful one-two punch. But apparently she's going to be back. Great. I'm way, so here, glad. Here's a little bit of Leslie Jones on SNL's Weekend Update. Mr. Che? You just call me Michael. Yeah, I don't really know you like that. And uh, I ain't never been on this side of the desk, so it's Mr. Che. <laughs> okay, so you're planning a wedding? Hell no. I'm never getting married. But I am planning the big show. My funeral. <laughs> Are you dying? Oh, no, Mr. Che. Don't worry. I just want to make sure that my funeral is planned the way I want it. Okay? My funeral is a 90-minute service. For real, my casket is set to blow up <laughs> if the funeral goes longer than 90 minutes. She's singing your good. tune, Jim. You want everything to be 90 minutes. We were just talking to Jared Bowen about how, uh, in the spirit of uh, Woody Allen, before he got in trouble, no film should be longer than uh, 90 minutes as far as I'm uh, Concerned. We're talking about uh, uh, Thompson, our uh, TV guy. So Matthew McConaughey, who I have to say I haven't seen much of. There was a little three or four years ago when that – what was the great television detective? thing? He was at the uh, a True Detective. Yeah. And oh, he, yeah. Dallas Buyers Club. That. He was like everywhere. And I don't know if he's disappeared a little bit or I've just been looking at something else. But now he's adding professor to his I titles. Know. Did you, I had no idea. Yeah, he's preparing syllabus uh, uh, for his class. Now, he's been teaching uh, uh, at University of Texas, Austin, for uh, some time as an adjunct. He comes in and teaches uh, uh, courses. But now he's actually been given a title of uh, a professor of practice, uh, as they call it. So he is officially a professor. And by the way, this isn't some little, you know, Chuck school of filmmaking kind of thing. This is the University of Texas at Austin Department of Radio, Television, and Film, uh, which has, is one of the greatest departments. Whenever my students are looking for places to go to graduate school, it's one of the first two that I recommend. The father of television studies is an art form, Horace Newcomb, came uh, and taught many years at the University of Texas at Austin. So uh, not only is he a professor, but he's a professor at one of the great schools. What's the other okay. one you recommend? Wait, you said one of two. What's the other one? Oh, Northwestern, where I went to, mm. University of North Carolina, uh, uh, Madison. 
UCLA and USC so, and all these kinds of things. So here's what I want to know, Bob Thompson. I'll, these, I'll, these, I'll send you some applications. Thank you, kindly. The, the, you know, these academics are very snooty. You know, you have to have all these degrees. If you've won a, a, a Golden Globe and an Oscar, like uh, I always mis- mispronounce his name, McConaughey, McConaughey yeah. has, do they make you get a PhD or can he be a professor without one? Oh, you can definitely be. I mean, there are departments where, uh, you know, PhDs are uh, usually required. The hard sciences, for yeah. example, where you okay. kind of learn all that kind of stuff. But if you go to English departments, there are often professors, uh, you know, who are great novelists. Uh, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, I think, is what, a professor at Princeton? Princeton, she yeah. Not, uh, she doesn't have a PhD. Good, okay. Um, we have many, I would say, in the Newhouse School that I teach in, I would say probably less. This is mostly a journalism and a uh, television film production uh, school. I, th- I think less than our less than half of our professors uh, have PhDs. I think I'm in the minority as being a jargon slinging egghead. Can you imagine the line outside the office for? Professor McConaughey's yeah. office hours. Can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> well, they must have already dealt with that because he's been there teaching for uh, I think since what 2015. He's of course a graduate of the school too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so he's they, they must have. Uh, uh, maybe you can get a what do, what do they have at Disney World? A fast pass to get into his office. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I've seen people watch his car ads over and over and over again. You've seen those yeah, car ads? Enough for it. Well, same oh, with John Ham. I, I mean, enough with the car ads. So, what are we watching this uh, coming week, Bob? Thompson. Well, it's tonight, and I don't know if this is a what to watch or what to uh, avoid, but it it does do some things that solve some of the things we've been complaining about. Tonight, and talk about binge-watching, from 5 o'clock to midnight, there is a 10-part, I'm sure you guys have already talked about this, a 10-part, 10-episode, 7-hour-long marathon about uh, the climate crisis on CNN, and they're going to talk to the te- ten, you know, chosen people that get to do these uh, things. And at first, you think, "Oh man, what is CNN? Another enough already?" But all the things I've been fussing about with the debates—how stupid they are that you only get a minute to respond, and mm-hmm. how stupid they are that you only get thirty seconds to uh, um, uh, respond to the response, and all that kind of thing. This is kind of doing something a little bit different. They're going to take each of these 10 uh, candidates with only one basic subject, the climate crisis, and they're going to get 40 minutes apiece. Um, I I have a hard time categorically complaining about that. No, I feel the same way. I mean, it's it's probably going to be tough viewing, but we did talk about it earlier. And for those of us who complain that climate change is not high enough priority – for enough people, uh, CNN is doing a huge public service. My guess is there aren't going to be a huge audience, at least for the whole thing. Uh, and by the way, for those who don't know, we mentioned this earlier in the show, uh, uh, there's a time slot for everybody. As you say, if you are only interested in finding out what Pete Buttigieg and you know, so-and-so uh, <laughs> have to say about that, uh, you could go at the specific time that you uh, choose. But I think it's a great public service on the part of CNN, and I agree with you. It's sort of put-up-or-shut-up time for those of us that say that serious issues well, don't also, get enough serious It's treatment. a great time. I mean, all everyone's been seeing all week in the news That's is these horrific point. stories about point. Dorian and decimating uh, the Bahamas, and I, now it's threatening the, the whole east coast of Florida, Georgia. It's very scary stuff. 
Yeah, the context this plays in is very interesting. My biggest worry is uh, when you look at the cast of characters, not that are going to be at the podium, but the ones asking the questions, none other than our friends Don Lemon, Chris Cuomo, Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, and Aaron Burnett. Mm-hmm. They each get, I guess, uh, there's going to be get two, two each. Two of the, yeah, right. Each one get uh, uh, two, and we'll we'll have to uh, uh, we'll have to see. That may be worth talking about next week, uh, or it may not be. You mean you you mean that they're not good questioners, or what do you mean? Well, they can go. I mean, you know, uh, Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo can go either way. These these are not people without credentials and talent. They have both. Um, uh, but as we talked about last week um, uh, with uh, uh, Chris Cuomo, they can they can also go a little crazy. Oh, okay. Well, they did. CNN specifically put out a director that Don Lemon could not drink during the two segments yeah, that he right. was doing. So I think I'm actually looking forward now, to that'd it. be the kind of tom, uh, town hall Thomas Jefferson would. <laughs> <could get. laughs> hey, okay, Bob. It's Bob great thank talk you very again. much. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Look forward to it. Thanks. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. We talked about TV watching. We just talked about TV watching with Bob Thompson. Earlier we talked about movie watching with Jared Bowen. We're asking you, do you still go to the theaters to watch movies? Or do you watch movies at home? Or do you just binge watch like Jim does as shows that uh, come all at once? We're going to ask you next at 8897-301. Whoops, 897-WGBH. The number is 877-301-8970. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradley. She is Marjorie again. You know, hearkening back to our conversation with Jared Bone earlier, we were talking about It Part 2, whatever the sequel is called it i think it's part two and the farewell got me to thinking about what i would argue marjorie is one of the biggest questions in america which is couch or theater where do you watch a movie in 2019 is it at home on your couch or do you still love the theater or do you not watch movies at all because television is so good and so engrossing that it's TV or bust. Their number is 877-301-8970. I don't think I've been to a movie theater. Maybe I have for one movie. I can't remember what it was. I watch almost everything at home. I watch very few movies at all anymore because the quality of television, I would argue, is so incredible. However, one of our coworkers got us information. This is from the Washington Post. Movie ticket revenue in 2018 in the United States went up, went up 8%. So which is some proof, at least, that the Netflixes of the world, if that's a word, and uh, the incredibly engrossing great television series are not doing a, providing a major dent into uh, movie revenues in traditional venues in the theaters. I'm surprised. Do you go to the theater, by the way? Well, um, n- not very much because there is a lot of stuff on on television. But there was this interesting thing about the, in this piece about that um, Netflix is not necessarily killing the movies because right. some people are, go- are doing both, uh, that uh, the movies that are big 
moneymakers are remakes, or they're all uh, what do you mean, like sequels well, movies? The Lion King oh. or The Avengers Endgame. That was so far the number one uh, uh, money grocer of the year, according to this numbers report on top grossing movies from domestic box office. Lion King, Toy Story 4, Captain Marvel, Spider Man, Far From Home. It was interesting. You have to go all the way down to number 36 before you get to Green Book, the movie that won mm-hmm. the Academy Award. So uh, the only one that's, that's kind of um, new and, and original is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is done pretty well. That's a, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. But, you're saying, you know, but the issue is, are you so dying to see, assuming you're into movies and not all your time consumed by great, what I would consider to be great TV, best ever, I would argue, TV, even though some of the great series have come finished, is, do you, if, you, if something's on the list that just came out that you're dying to see, do you wait to see it at home? And by the way, I don't do it to save money. I just don't, I don't, it's not, great joy i mean there is a there's a, a nice thing to be in a theater where scores of people if not hundreds of people are enjoying the exact same thing you are i sort of like that kind of experience but i also like watching it when i want to watch it on my couch or just doing tv so i, I have to say i am stunned by these numbers that revenue movie ticket revenue in theaters uh is uh is going up going up in well, recent have, years i assume it was getting croaked but they also talk about how it wasn't so good back in 2017 and then uh black panther came out and seemed to turn everything around mm-hmm. in 2018 and that was a movie that i think a lot of people did not want to watch on tv they wanted to watch it in the, in, yeah, in the theater and the same thing was you know avengers infinity war that was also a huge thing and that again is a movie i think you don't want to see in your little well, people well, do most have people huge, don't have little TVs. And they have huge screens at home, but it's still not the same as being in the theater with all that sound and everything else. And being so, so it's it's been back and forth. Do you watch movies at all anywhere? I'm trying to get to the bottom of this with you, or do you just watch? Every TV? once in a while, I go watch? to the Coolidge Corner Theater because it's close to my house. I know I can park there and stuff like that. But huh. you know, mostly going to the movies. Well, at least in Boston, it's kind of a pain in the neck hmm. because either you go to Fenway or the. Parking garage is the worst garage ever. You ever go to the Fenway theaters? Yes. Oh my God, those huge posts they have underneath it. You can't ever park your car. It's so nerve wracking packing mm. your car. Well, then you have to go down to the one down in Boston Common. Uh, that that is another kind of nightmare. Mm. You know what I mean? We should be doing a segment on parking lots instead. It seems that's <laughs> well, what you're I much more interested in. I think in. that's part of it. It is right? part of it, Margaret. I mean, if you, if you live in the suburbs, you go to some nice uh, theater where it's easy to park. That makes it a whole different story. But if you're having to fight your way into the parking garage and pay 25 bucks to park, you're probably less inclined to You go. once made theaters much more attractive. You can what? drink in a lot of these theaters now. Oh, I'm serious, exactly. by the way. No, I'm serious. That is, don't you think or that's a big deal? Or they got that one on Chestnut Hill where you can drink and eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hooked up to Davio's, right? Yeah. I think Cassie uh, Cali. It's on Crossley. the same floor. You go up the escalator. Yeah. It's in Chestnut Hills. Cali Crossley said? goes there all the time. They have these big, huge seats, and it's very comfortable. And and it's, uh, over your neck of the woods, they put in those new seats over at the Kendall Square Theater. Yeah, I know you have to wear a beret. Marjorie thinks you can't go into the Kendall <laughs> unless you're if you're a man. You have to be wearing a beret. Well, it is a little. Over at the Kendall, where they do, I do, I do oh not think God. they have the real butter. You talk about the parking there, there too. I, they, I think you the, were wrong. I actually, don't. I think that is one of the real, okay. real, real well, butter I asked theaters. When I was there, you know, it's interesting. It by the way, this says it all. We're talking about <laughs> entertainment and the quality of entertainment: movies, great television. Marjorie's talking about parking and real butter in her popcorn. <laughs> well, you're asking about why people maybe don't go to the movies okay. that much, and that Stay is one fine. of the reasons. And for people who've never been to the Kendall Square Theater, it really is something. Because there you have to stand in this long line mm-hmm. to, to you know, get your ticket punched, your validation punched. Yeah. Actually, it's really funny. Oh, you go to the Kendall Square Theater, Show's there's this ticket. It's this ticket validation yeah. mm-hmm. thing that nobody could figure out nobody. because because everybody there is about seventy five or eighty, yeah. 
And uh, they just let everybody stand there forever mm. trying to figure out how to validate their, their ticket. So there's a long line inside. Then there's a long line in the parking lot. Well, you know what they've done, which I thought was really good? reviewing the movies. You mentioned the age. You now can both buy a ticket and a cemetery plot. <laughs> so it's a one stop. I mean, really. Chloe in Watertown. I it doesn't even know what we're talking about after your performance. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Chloe. Hi. Hi. Um, I, my husband and I make it a point every year to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies. Yeah. All, like, 50 or 60 of them. Like, I'm talking about even, like, sound. And- oh, you don't oh, mean just best gosh. picture. <laughs> and we try to do as many of those in a theater as possible. So, with... Uh, Marjorie, you're talking about parking. I know all about the parking for all the movie theaters all around. <laughs> you do? You can send me an email. <laughs> Clue me in. So why because... do you choose Chloe? I, I love that you do that, by the way, because I often <laughs> embarrass myself by admitting that I haven't even seen most of the best picture movies. But I, I love that you and your husband do that. But why do you decide to do it in a theater rather than doing it in the comfort of your home? Well, some of them you have to see it in the theater because of the time frame of the nominations being announced mm-hmm. and when the Oscars happen, because we try to do it before the Oscars oh, that's a good actually point. take yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you have to do it in the movie theater. How about when you have a choice? Why do you choose when the theater? When you have a choice, it's a different experience. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it on a big screen. You're seeing it with a lot of people. You're seeing it in a format that the director and the creators of the movie intend you to That's see it. Intend you to see it on the big screen with a lot of people. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a nice thing to do on the weekends. You're getting out of, you know, do I have to do laundry? Do I have to go grocery shopping? It's like, no, we're going to go to the movies. We're going to go have an afternoon and go to the movies. Chloe, that was um, great. Uh, Chloe, before you go, do you have <laughs> no, any really? preferred That's parking good. spots and oh, places God. that you, that you think are really convenient? <laughs> Well, you talking about the Kendall, I find the second or third level of that garage a lot easier. And they have changed the validation a little bit. It's oh, they have. Have you noticed why there's 20 cleaner. people standing at the validation thing and they can't figure out you, how to work you, the damn you, machine? Go ahead, Chloe. You can scan your ticket. You can scan your yeah. ticket when you're walking out. You don't even have to go to the front desk. You can just scan your ticket and okay. it'll beep and, and you can Chloe, out. one last thing. This is probably the most important question we're asking you. When you go to the Kendall, does your husband wear a beret? <laughs> you know, he doesn't. But we went to Paris earlier this year and I bought one. So maybe he will now. <laughs> yeah. Chloe, yeah. that was great. That was great. Send Marjorie some more parking tips so it'll ease her stress level. Yeah, the Thank number you. of film experts that are at the Kendall, too, is amazing. I mean, they know everything about these movies. They analyze them nonstop. What do you think, by the way? While they're how, standing in line to validate their ticket. You know, how did you, you know, I thought there was a little hyperbole in Chloe when she oh, talked about knowing all the parking. She knows the secrets, second or third floor, or whatever she said at the Kendall. <laughs> how, I mean, she's got a system. I love that. Amy and Gloucester, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hey, guys. I love you guys, by the way. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I try to listen to you as much as possible. Thank you. So, Jim, earlier you said that you were surprised that it went up 8% when more people are going to movies. Yep. Um, I think one of the main reasons, especially currently, is because more families, I know my family does, and I know quite a few other people, we can't really afford to do the other things like go to the theater or go to concerts. So now we kind of go to movies as like the big thing to look forward to. Yeah. Well, that's that actually makes a lot of sense. When you say family, does that include kids? Yeah. And How old are your we kids? Go to AMC. 
Uh, 17 and 19, so I wouldn't really call them kids, I guess. Okay. No, but they are. Uh, they're your kids. So do they, do but, they know, like... My, girl, my girlfriend take their girlfriend, takes her girlfriends out, you know, it's something that, you know, we used to go out to dinner, but that's now like 100, 200 bucks. That's a wonderful point. You know, it's, um, by the way, it's all... interesting you say that because even though movie tickets prices are now obscene as far as I'm uh, concerned... You're right. They're so much cheaper than than going to a baseball game yeah. or going to the theater. Amy, or... do you do you stash your own uh, snacks in your pocketbook? <laughs> Sneak them in. You joke? Are you are you joking? I, my mother taught me ever since I was young. I we have picnic. I've been to. We bring in, you know, food, um, all kinds of things. I'm not supposed to bring in there. Yeah. Um, my own butter. For, the only thing I really get is popcorn. Yeah. Wait a second. You so, bring uh, your own butter? Like they never give you enough. Wait, you bring your own butter, Amy? Well, it's, not, it's not real butter. Oh. So I bring cheese and uh, arugula goes really good. We bring our own sodas. We bring our yeah. own. Everyone I know goes to buy candy beforehand. And everyone has these giant sacks that they pull out nowadays with picnics because none of us can afford food there. Exactly. Amy, that was so, great it's too. so expensive. Great it's like, what's it, $5 or $7 for a soda or something? It's crazy. You be in Boston. Thank you for calling. Hi there. Bye. Hi. Uh, um, I just want to say that um, one of the last great movies that I saw was Whale Rider at the movies. Mm-hmm. I used to work at the movie theater in Provincetown. Oh, I've been oh, there. Oh, sure. Yeah, let me tell you, working concessions, it's not as easy as it looks. And the movies, you know, the theater, they only make money from concessions. Correct. And... Well, my point is the money thing, money issue, because everything costs so much these days. I just think that going to the movies just, you know, I think the younger generation who don't have all these bills to pay, you know, pay your cable bill and all that stuff. I I think they're more prone or families perhaps, to go to the movie. Well, like the prior caller, you mean the caller right before you talked about if you want to do something. Uh, it, it, eating out is really expensive in most places. The theater is prohibitively expensive. Going to a sporting event, at least a pro sporting yeah. event, is expensive. So even if it's a lot of money for a movie, or at least more than it used to be, it's cheaper than the alternatives, I guess, especially when you sneak your own food in. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the call, Thanks, Yumi. Yumi. And you look at a lot of, like I said before, these the top-grossing movies. Yeah. They're family movies. Toy Story 4, Aladdin, incredible Pokemon, reviews. Detective Pikachu, mm-hmm. you know, Dumbo. These are all kid movies, animated movies that you, mm-hmm. take your, that you take your kid to. And the overall theme that wins over and over is adventure and action. Hmm. Hmm. What do you say to that? Well, I think, I think it makes sense. As I said before, the only one that was an original movie that's a big gross this year is the Quentin Tarantino movie, which you're not going to take your kids to. You know, but by the way, one of the the one exception, even though I, I you know, I said, well, actually, this is not. I'm wrong. I'm about to say something that was incorrect. Oh, okay. Then you'd humiliate can't, me. So why don't can't possibly do that? No, Nate I never do in that. Manchester by the Hi, Sea. Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. How hey. are you doing? Excellent. Good. Uh, oh, this is my second time calling. I'm so excited to be back. Thank oh, you. thank you for Glad calling. To have you. What's up? Yeah, so are you guys familiar with the subscription series like A List Rewards at AMC or Movie yeah. Pass? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah Movie Pass yeah, is supposedly so, a big builder for the movies, right? Yeah, it, well, it it was initially, and then it like didn't go out of business. It went bankrupt, right? Because yeah, they like, were charging so little. But go ahead, Nate. Exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, and then they uh, so I actually switched over to AMC has almost the like an identical 
of subscription. And it's a lot better, actually. Could and you so explain, you know, you asked, us, Nate, you asked us if we knew, and a lot of people probably don't explain what the AMC thing is. I'm not familiar with that particular plan. Tell us what it does, how it so, works. So, so if you go to a movie, it'll cost you somewhere around like $15 for a ticket, right? Yep. Um, so if you see more than one movie, you're already paying $30, you know, for, um, you know, for two movies. Mm-hmm. So AMC, A-List, and by the way, I don't work for them, so, okay. um, but I... But I, uh, that you pay $20 a month, and you can see up to three movies per week, any movies you want, any time. Wow. Uh, and, and so you can save a lot of money. And so that's what's gotten me back going to the movies. Because to be honest, I have a hard time these days in 2019 watching a movie at home for two hours. Like my attention span is just completely run short these days. So I, I need to be in a theater watching a movie where I'm forced to sit and watch it from start to finish. Otherwise, I'll pull out my phone or pull out my computer and do work or something like that. So, well, also, the refrigerator uh, is within reach, at least for <laughs> some of us. You know what? I mean, you may not know the answer to this, but what, what's the name of the other service that you and I were talking about that did go out of business because it wasn't making any money? The Movie Pass. Uh, uh, movie Movie Pass. So, why is the AMC thing surviving? If it, I assume it's a lost leader too, is it not, or is it, or don't you know? I, I actually don't know. I, I do know that uh, Easy Pass, so AMC is a major company, right? Yeah, they that, have yeah. you know millions and millions of dollars, whereas MoviePass was a startup, and I, don't, I just don't think they had the capital to keep it going. I'm glad you called. I'm glad you made your second call. It's a great thing, particularly for a couple of people mentioning how unaffordable even movies are. Nate, thanks. Call again for your third soon. We appreciate it. We're done. Thank you very much for listening done. to another edition of Boston Public Radio. We made Radio. through another one, Marjorie. We did. We did. No, you did. I, I did. I feel yes, much better today. Yes, sir. You had a today. tough day. I had a tough day yesterday. But I'm bounced First back. Day back. Thank goodness. Uh, tune in tomorrow for Andrew Cabral and, uh, on Law and Order and Paul Revel on Education and Addiction Specialist Dr. John Halpern on his new book about the history of opium. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh. Happy one year. Boston Public Radio anniversary, Arjun. Yeah, happy anniversary. Zoe Matthews, Hanny Ubali. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker, a production of WGBH. What's on TV? Jim Browdy. A couple of things. One of the biggest stories in town was the, I guess, confrontation, really, between the Suffolk County DA's office, Rachel Rollins, and the judge in these counter-demonstrator cases, and the judge not listening to the recommendations of the reformist DA, uh, Rasan Hall from the ACLU and former federal judge Nancy Gertner are going to join me, though. And then Adam Riley ventures out to Revere Beach to look at new developments, how they're changing the landscape, what the impact is of climate change. Rob Cacuzzo and his father, Stephen, took a cycling trip for the ages to their family's hometown of San Donato in Italy. Uh, Rob's written a book about it. It is terrific. They're both going to join me tonight. And I'm going to do a little commentary about the offer that the Sackler family is making to settle all these cases around uh, OxyContin and how it's an offer, at least I believe, that the uh, state should refuse. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Brody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great afternoon.